1: I remember a, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the situation involving a six-year-old. I still can't believe this story, but a six-year-old who actually went so far as to not only bring a gun to school, but uh, he actually shot his teacher. And the thing that's amazing about this story, first of all, is is everything. But one of the things that I cited is I, I really found the... Heroism of the teacher involved, involved uh, as she was shot, still working to um, make sure that her students got to safety. I still found it really impressive. I still found it very heroic, quite frankly. Well, now that teacher, Abby's Werner, is suing because apparently this Virginia teacher who was shot by her six-year-old student. Texted a loved one before the incident took place, before the shooting, expressing frustration with administrators who had apparently been warned three times that day that the young boy had a gun. NBC News reporting that Newport News first grade teacher Abigail Zwerner sent the text an hour before she was shot on January 6th saying the child had a gun in his backpack. The source told NBC, quote, she was frustrated because she was trying to get help with this child for this child and then she needed help. No one was coming. So the news of this text message came as Werner's lawyer announced that this 25-year-old teacher, only 25 years old, is going to sue the school district. Here was her attorney, Diane Toscano.
2: Three times school administration was warned by concerned teachers and employees that the boy had a gun on him at the school, but the administration could not be bothered.
1: I hope that was worth the wait. So we're of the belief that the greater the anticipation before an audio soundbite plays, the the more you'll enjoy it. Well, anyway. News of this text message comes as a result of this lawsuit. So her lawyer, the one that you just heard there after a brief delay, is alleging that administrators at Rich Neck Elementary School failed to act and it resulted in her client being injured. And uh, I completely agree. Some people are saying that uh, this lawsuit has no place, that you can't be suing the school district for a 6-year-old bringing a gun to school. I don't think so. So the lawyer that you just heard there pointed out that on that day over the course of a few hours three different times three times the school administration was warned by concerned teachers and employees that the gun, the boy had a gun on him and the school and at the school and was threatening people, but in the lawyer's words, the administration couldn't be bothered. So Toscano said one teacher actually told administrators at 1230 in the afternoon the day of the shooting that she searched the boy's backpack of the gun but believed it was in his pocket. Shortly after, a different teacher alerted administrators about the boy after a student said the six-year-old showed him the gun and threatened to shoot him. Stunningly, another employee asked if she could search the boy but was dismissed by administrators who said to wait the situation out. Because the school day was almost over. And then, of course, the boy intentionally shot Zwerner around 2 p.m. that day, and the bullet traveled through her hand into her chest. And uh, she, this teacher, warned the school at 11.15 in the morning that the boy threatened to beat up one of his peers. Police have said nobody from the school warned them about the gun before the shooting. Now, I definitely think... This lawsuit has merit. But my question for you at 800 848 that's 800 848 is this. If this is true, this set of events that I just uh, laid out for you, that the school administration officials were warned, that this occurred repeatedly, including by the teacher that was herself shot, that there was every warning sign, every red flag in the world, I think what should happen here is a lot worse than this school district being forced to fork over some money. I think the people that made the decision not to pull out all the stops in pulling this student out of class, uh, taking this gun away from this student, isolating him from the other students and the teacher, the, the, whether it was the principal, whether it was the assistant principal, whether it was the school district superintendent, I don't know who made this decision. They all need to lose their jobs, as far as I'm concerned. As far as I'm concerned, a lawsuit is the mildest penalty that these school administration officials should be dealing with. This is a level of irresponsibility, negligence and malfeasance that I think should result in not just suspension, but for termination of all these people involved. The young boy's mother purchased the gun legally according to the police but it's really not clear how the child was able to access it so far the mother has not been charged with a crime i don't know if the mother will be charged with a crime and in a statement through their lawyer the family said their son has an acute disability i certainly i think that's probably true i don't think a normal functioning 6 year old that is um, you know, not suffering with some severe mental illness or some severe psychological issue would ever do this. That being said, that's no excuse. That doesn't excuse the behavior or the lack of behavior with respect to the school administration on this. So my question is, one, what do you think for the of the um, of the lawsuit in general? And number two is what do you think about. Um, my contention, which is there there ought to be some stiffer penalties for the administration officials involved here. What do you think? 800 848 9222 848 9222 Let us begin with Neil on Staten Island. Hello there, Neil.
3: Hey, Frank. A couple of things. Uh, number one, as for the lawsuit, I don't blame the teacher for suing. As for the administrators, I don't blame uh, anybody for getting rid of them. But where is the parents' responsibility? Well, so,
1: but but so far, though, nobody ha- is talking about what penalties the administration officials are going to be facing. So far, you know, remember, in the Memphis situation, every day it seems like we're hearing about a different official that's fired or facing penalties, uh, police fired, EMT officials facing penalties. So far, uh, to the best of my knowledge, we haven't heard any of that regarding these school administration officials. But But go ahead, your point about the parents.
3: Well, the parents should be responsible they had the gun. Right. Even though it was legal, uh, they had the responsibility to safeguard it. But then on the other hand, where's the teacher's responsibility? I mean, the kid if the kid had the gun in his hand and he was waving it around in the classroom, which I'm pretty sure he wasn't, her responsibility was to evacuate the classroom and leave the kid in the room. So, now, well, so If right, she, but... said he, she knew he had a gun on him, Frank, why don't you just grab the kid and take the gun off him? He's a six-year-old.
1: Well, you because it's also a gun, though. I mean, you, so you don't think the teacher acted appropriately by notifying the administration officials?
3: I think it's ridiculous. The kid's got a gun in his hand, and she, and she calls the administration. Hey, little Johnny got a gun in his hand. What are we going to do about it? It's moronic. Well, if, he, if the gun maybe was in his backpack where well, she knew he had it, then you grab the kid, you grab the backpack away, you take the gun away from the kid. He's only six. It's not like he's a 17-year-old teenager who's going to really put up a fight for her. But if he had the gun in his hand, you get everybody out of the classroom and, and you just run away from the kid. You know, yeah, I, I don't understand.
1: Well, I, look, it kid. doesn't seem like he that she saw him uh, waving the gun in his hand, and that, that so far that hasn't been reported uh, by uh, by anybody. Uh, as far, but it, I guess you're right, all right i mean if it's if she saw the gun in in his backpack or if she knew the gun was in his backpack, or if she heard it from one of the other students, should she have done more than just notify the administrators i, I don't know uh that's uh maybe maybe that's a fair point uh maybe that's a fair point, so do you think that aspect of this? Uh, Abigail Zwerner, and again, remember, this is someone who, even after being shot, uh, rushed to make sure the other students were got to, were getting to safety. Do you think that aspect of this, maybe her negligence in disarming this child, could hurt her prospects for a lawsuit?
3: I I, I, I think she has contributory negligence towards it, Frank. I mean, I, I I cannot for the life of me see. That you can't grab a six-year-old and take the gun away. But if it's in his hand, no, I wouldn't go near him. But I would certainly get everyone out of the classroom. Why would you? Why would again? You, say you keep classroom? saying it
1: was in his hand. She did not see the gun in his hand until no, after I, he was shot.
3: I was saying if it was in his hand, Frank.
1: Right, but it wasn't. It, so you keep saying that. Why do you keep saying that?
3: Well, because see, there's either two things: either he had it in his hand, or he had it tucked away somewhere. If he had it tucked away somewhere. There's no reason why she couldn't overpower a six-year-old and grab the gun. If it was in his hand, then she should. Then everyone should have She shouldn't even have been there to get shot. All
1: right. Well, I guess. Uh, look, maybe you're right, Neil. I, I think um, it's it's very easy to uh, second guess someone who's a shooting victim and kind of blame her, as you said, for contributory negligence. I think the um, administrators at this school really behaved abysmally. If a teacher informs the administration, and this was three warnings that the administration apparently had, a third teacher warning at 1 o'clock, after 1 o'clock, that a boy told her that the perpetrator showed him the gun at recess and threatened to shoot him if he told anybody, that should be priority number one for the school district. Around a half hour before that, a second teacher went to a school administrator and told them she had searched the bag of the boy who was suspected of bringing the gun to school, and the teacher told the administration she believed the boy had put the gun in his pocket before going outside for recess. She still certainly, that teacher, that second teacher, hadn't seen the gun. The first warning was around 11.15 when Zerner, Zwerner, pursuant to the school protocol, told the school administrator that the, uh, that the student had threatened to beat up a child. So um, she never saw the gun, apparently. What her lawyer is saying, and again, maybe the school administration officials have a different take, but she didn't see the gun. So I think that uh, it's unfair to say that she should have disarmed this child when this was kind of just what she was hearing, secondhand from other students i don't know tell me what you think 800 848 helen is in connecticut hello helen
4: hello frank so i definitely agree with uh one of the points you make and that is that the administrators should definitely be held accountable for this um entire situation um it was completely ridiculous for them to ignore, even if nothing in fact was found in this young man's backpack or in his pocket. The fact that there was this innuendo, the fact that there was someone who said that he that they actually saw the gun, would certainly send alarm right. and um and the administration should have absolutely reacted immediately, especially during this time. When there have been so many school shootings all across the United States of America, for these people not to take this seriously was absolutely ridiculous, and they should lose their their jobs. Um, Something happened to me many years ago when I was uh, teaching for the New York uh, school system, and uh, I had come back after a number of years, and I was assigned um, in, in a place outside of the school in a temporary classroom. And because I was a seasoned teacher and really did not have very much uh, problem with discipline and so forth, the newer teachers' children that they had problems with were being sent into my classroom. So I ended up with six rather obstreperous um, children. One of them um, was particularly troublesome, and I was standing at my desk once. I usually walked around the classroom, but at this point I was standing behind my desk And this um, boy got up from his seat, came around. I asked him to sit down. He came around. He did a drop kick and kicked me in the back. Wow. My goodness. And I immediately grabbed him. I called. I had an intercom. I called the administrator, the administration, and I said, um, send someone out here immediately to cover my classroom. When they arrive, I am bringing this young man to the office. I want to see the principal immediately, and that is exactly what happened when we got to the school, walking through the schoolyard with um, me having him by the hand, and we got to the principal 's office. I said, "I think something severe should be done here to really uh, send a message to this um, to this young man." that um, attacking a teacher physically in a classroom in front of children and my take on it and what will be done has to be pretty dramatic because this cannot stand. She called the police, and the police were called for two reasons. Number one, well, it was an assault, but that wasn't the reason. The reason was to really send a message to this young man that this is not not only not acceptable but that kind of thing can be punishable and punishable by the law because of such and such a reason and um, and for about a month after that I didn't hear a peep out of this uh, out of this boy I had to do this for two reasons number one because he did assault me and and secondarily because I wanted to make sure that he understood that it wasn't sure. acceptable. Oh my. And and also there was another reason. And that was he did this in front of the other children right. in my classroom. Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh-
4: and that was to me something that the children would have to understand that it was not only accept, not acceptable, but that I was going to do something about it and that he was going to be punished. He was suspended for three days and then came back to the classroom.
1: What, what so, was his behavior um, like after the, he returned to the classroom? Well, as I said,
4: for you know, for a couple of weeks, he was um, pretty much um, better behaved. But he was a troubled kid, and he was never what I would say um, was a well-behaved child. Um, and so uh, I don't know later really what uh, what really happened um, with him. I managed him and um, the other few that had been sent to me pretty well. But my main objective here was to maintain order so that I could teach the uh, the children who were interested in learning that I felt were always being penalized by children who were, um, obstreperous, or were taking way too much time away from teachers who were really trying to do their jobs and this is an unfortunate situation. Um, what happened in in the school system? I did hear that the uh, a few days ago that the superintendent was asked to resign uh, from this um, school system i I believe that that 's um something that uh, that did take place. But um, the administrators in this situation were completely out of line. Totally. I, not, and I agree with
1: you. Yeah, Helen, thank you for the call. Thanks for sharing your experiences. I want to try and grab uh, some other people here. But please call again. It sounds like uh, you have uh, quite a few uh, stories to tell about a lot of uh, experiences that education officials are dealing with these days. Thanks for the call. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848 is in Sullivan County. Hello, Yitsi. Mm-hmm. Hello? Hello, Yitsi. What's on your mind?
6: Yes, I just thought that's a great idea if they try to enforce that in all schools, the kids should be coming to school with clear backpacks.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't think that lets the administration in this particular school off the hook. There were three warnings that they had about this particular student, including, two, including at least two that involved the rumor that he had a gun. And yet, they didn't want to do anything because it was almost the end of the school day. I mean it's preposterous. It's preposterous. Not only should this school district have to pay in my judgment through the nose to this 25-year-old teacher that was shot and could have died and in my view exercised a great deal of heroism, but everyone involved that was that knew about this in the administration and did nothing to thoroughly search this kid and disarm him should be should be out of a job. They should never be in a position to run a school again. I mean, how much of a blunder can you make and still be employed? By the way, we're going to talk with James Bamford, a journalist, documentary producer, and best-selling author who has a book that everyone is talking about. It's called Spy Fail. Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's counterintelligence. Really excited to talk with him. I haven't read the book yet, but he has been really the leading journalist, or at least one of the leading journalists, on the issue of uh, the intelligence community for a long time. And I have some questions about that. All right, uh, John is in the truck. Hello, John. Hi, good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, I think this six-year-old's family
5: uh, should contact uh, Cosmo Kramer's attorney, Jackie, because they're the ones with the lawsuit. I mean, honestly, if they can't uh, uh, investigate uh, uh, a kid having a gun
1: in school nowadays, it's ridiculous. Meaning that the parents of the child, not the not the administrators.
5: Absolutely, the kid should have a, 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 a lawsuit for being around adults that. I'm not even capable of. Uh, well, John, that's such a good point. Know.
1: It's such a good point. I, I, you know, again, I hope my son never has any sort of uh, disability, psychological, mental, or anything like that. But if do, I do, you did,
5: remember Cosmo? Cosmo? Yeah, yeah Jackie uh, Childs. Jackie. Jackie
1: Childs. Yeah. Um, if uh, <laughs> and thanks, John. If if I had a six year old that had, or a child of any age, quite frankly. That had psychological disabilities or mental disabilities, I would absolutely never have a gun in that household uh, even I would hesitate to have a gun in a household with even a child that didn't have disabilities when I my father used to be a, uh, a gun owner, kept a gun in uh, in his house with my mother, and then when I was born, he got rid of it. Because he w- didn't even want to take a chance that there could be an actual an, an uh, accidental gunfire incident. And I am glad that he did do that. I don't think I would have done anything like that. And there's a lot of very responsible gun owners that are also parents. But I I, I think that's a fair question to ask. But the question I'm asking is about the school administration officials. I have not yet seen a headline that says school administration officials fired in aftermath of a six-year-old shooting his teacher. Why haven't I seen that? Maybe it's happened, and they're keeping it under wraps. It's certainly possible, but uh, I think the public has a right to know about that. Jimmy is in Staten Island. Hello, Jimmy.
7: Hi, Frank. Nice to talk to you. Um, I hope the baby's doing well. and I don't think I don't think you have to worry about him because you're a responsible parent, you and your beautiful wife. And now I'm a firm believer in P-I-N-S, person in need of supervision, because it's, uh, they found the gun. They knew the gun. He had the gun. Bring the kid in the classroom, have security there, open up his knapsack, because now the teacher didn't get hurt. But what's going to happen the next time when it comes in at 10, 11, 12 years old? Is he going to shoot someone to death or another student? Everything's out of control. Everyone's running amok. And all I can say is, as a devout Christian, I pray for this world because we're hanging America like a loose tooth in the balance. And I just want to tell you, your show is absolutely amazing. And God bless you and all the best to you and yours. Oh, That's
1: awfully nice of you, Jimmy. Thank you. Uh, Appreciate that very much. Buonasera. 800-848-9222 Bernie, what's on your mind?
7: Hi, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, I've been following this case from day 1. So, I need to clarify some things that went on. Uh, the superintendent was dismissed. I believe the uh, the board of education had a had a meeting last week and the superintendent was dismissed. Number 2, um, This is a special needs youngster, and the parents, either the mother or the father, would go with the youngster to class every day. On this particular day, the mother and the father couldn't go to accompany him, Mm -hmm. and this is what happened. Number three, um, his knapsack was searched, and they didn't find anything. They didn't realize that he had taken the gun out and really had put it in in his pocket. Number four, when you can't – the protocol is that no teacher is to search a youngster for a weapon. You call the administration, as she did. You call the administration, and the administrator has has to go to the classroom, take them out. And uh, search him. Uh, and by the way, she did have the students removed from the classroom. Um, she she really is a hero.
1: Exa- oh, no, I, I, that was the first thing I said over a week ago when this story or two weeks ago when the story first broke. I completely agree with that. And, you know, but to your point, though, I know that the superintendent, uh, Mr. Parker, uh, George Parker, w- was removed But what about the administrator that was informed that day? I don't see any record that that person was fired.
7: Yes, uh, no question about that, that the protocol was not followed, uh, that the administrator uh, take the youngster out and do the search Um, and, and. I, you know, uh, speculating. Perhaps the superintendent was dismissed because he did not do professional development with, with his principals and APs, um, on on what has to be done when when something like this comes up. I'm only speculating. Yeah. Okay. Well- I, I was I was a former city administrator for safety and security, uh, so you know. I know what the protocols are, and, and, uh, and you're right. I, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering what, why the principal or AP uh, have, have not been suspended right. or even fired.
1: Yeah, and precisely, Bernie. Thank you very much. Very informative. Hey, uh, speaking of information, you want to learn about the intelligence community? There is no better journalist who has been covering it than James Bamford. He's going to join us next to tell us uh, what the intelligence community is up to, where they might be lacking, what can be done, and what that means for national security and your safety. Very excited to talk to Jim Bamford. Straight at
0: the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
1: Was a birthday request of PR guru Ryan McCormick, who celebrated his birthday yesterday. Steppenwolf singing "Born to Be Wild." If there's one aspect of America's government that seems a little wild, it might be the intelligence community. This is something that was scrutinized, criticized heavily by Democrats during the Bush administration. And then when Donald Trump repeatedly started uh, criticizing the intelligence community, uh, even while he was president and their treatment of him, it became a a sector that was heavily criticized by Republicans and people on the right. Now there's a new church-style committee that is supposedly going to look at the so-called weaponization of the intelligence community. Could this be... One of the few issues that in a hyper partisan, ultra polarized Washington, D.C., that we could see the left and the right actually get together on and make some changes. What should those changes be? What would they look like? Well, someone who has been covering this issue for a long time is James Bamford. He is a best selling author, he is a journalist, he is a, a documentar- documentary producer who has been covering these intelligence agencies for years, especially the NSA. The New York Times has called him the nation's premier journalist on the subject of the NSA. The New Yorker named him the NSA's chief chronicler. He's also taught at uh, UC Berkeley and been a uh, distinguished visiting professor there. He's written for every publication that you can imagine. He's won all sorts of awards for his journalism and his writing. And he's uh, got a new book out, which everybody's talking about. You might have seen the excerpt in the New York Post recently. It's called Spy Fail, Spies moles, saboteurs, and the collapse of America's counterintelligence. Jim, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Appreciate it. Oh, no, great,
8: Frank. Uh, great to be on your show. And I love the title of your show. It's fantastic.
1: Thank you very much. I wish I that's the one thing about this show I can't take any credit for. That's our owner, John Katzmatidis, who came up with that. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, let me ask you an, what prompted your uh, your specialization in this area. Why the intelligence community? What sparked your interest as a journalist? And why have you spent so many years researching, exploring and covering the intelligence community?
8: Well, it goes back a long way. I was in the Navy for three years during Vietnam. I got out and uh, went to law school. I didn't really particularly want to be a lawyer. Um, I thought it was rather boring the whole three years of law school. So I really wanted to be a writer, and I didn't really have uh, any expertise in any area. Um, But I did have a, a sort of fascination with intelligence. I saw a bit of it when I was in the Navy. And uh, I was always interested in the CIA, but then I noticed that nobody had ever done a book on the National Security Agency. It was totally undone. Um, And so I spent three years looking into the NSA. I did a tremendous amount of research, interviewed a lot of people, and uh, ended up writing the very first book on – NSA, which uh, didn't exactly make the government very happy. They threatened me with prosecution at one point. Wow. Actually, two points. Um, although I never broke any law, so they ended up backing away and not actually prosecuting. Um, but they were very angry because nobody'd ever written a book about NSA, and uh, they considered it, uh, still considered it pretty much the, the most secret agency in the U.S. government. So um, I ended up I mean, the irony here is they threatened me with prosecution on my first book on NSA. And then when I wrote another book on NSA, they actually had a book signing for me at NSA. (laughs) So, you know, sort of this love-hate relationship uh, I've had with them. then I did a third book on NSA and and then several others on different aspects of the intelligence community. So, so yeah, it's been sort of love-hate depending on which – Side of the
1: uh, uh, aisle that they're looking at me on. So now, obviously, one of the issues that has been thrust into the news is how presidents and former presidents and former vice presidents handle classified information and classified documents. Uh, We've seen now President Trump, President Biden, then Vice President Biden, and former Vice President Pence all have issues with mishandling classified information. First thing is in delving into this I don't think a lot of Americans had a full appreciation for the sheer volume of classified documents that are out there. Do you think from where you're standing that the government is just classifying too many different documents?
8: Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, when I was in the Navy, uh, I was in a intelligence unit and uh, Christmas cards were sent out, and they actually classified the Christmas cards because oh boy. some of the names that were uh, signing the Christmas cards. So, um, yeah, it's been over classification for for decades and decades. And um, but the problem is also it's the lack of. I uh, you know, on one hand, you have the over classification, and on the other hand, you have the lack of security of the uh, information. Uh, this is really small potatoes. Just uh, finding few hundred documents here or there at the Trump mansion or out at uh, Biden's uh, house or whatever. Uh, because in the book, I write about how uh, during the uh, last few years, actually during the uh, Obama administration, the um, NSA managed to lose more than half a billion pages of documents uh, classified above top secret. Uh, That's half a billion, um, above half a billion, actually.
1: We're talking with uh, James Bamford. He's the author of the book Spy Fail. So much of your book deals with the uh, failures in terms of accountability with agencies like the NSA. And I think, at least in the excerpts that I've read, you asked the question that I think everybody's asking, which is if the NSA or other similar agencies are going to be so negligent in terms of how they handle information, how they uh, handle what should be something that I think a lot of people view as routine, how can they really be trusted to keep the American people safe? It seems like a fair question to ask, doesn't it, James?
8: Well, of course, and that's pretty much the theme of my book was uh, what, what happens when the government can't keep track of all its secrets and when he, it uh, you know, completely fails in terms of uh, uh, security. So uh, not only did NSA lose uh, more than half a billion pages of documents, just walked out the door, employees walking out the door with them, uh, a lot of those ended up in Russia. And then uh, on top of that, they lost almost all of their cyber weapons. Other employees walked out with all the cyber weapons almost, and uh, then put them up on the internet um, for for sale. I mean, you know, taking the NSA's most valuable uh, weapons, their cyber weapons, the equivalent of a loose nuke, and then putting them up for sale on the internet. Eventually, they wound up in uh, the hands of the North Koreans and, and the Russians, and they were used against the United States and and ended up creating the uh, world's largest uh, cyber attack, I think, called uh, WannaCry, which was uh, the name for this worldwide cyber attack that ended up shutting down hospitals all over the world. So all this happened because of lack of security, and so there's enormous concentration on, in terms of the media, on what's happening at Mar-a-Lago or the Biden residents or whatever. But there's got to be a lot more attention paid to uh, the security at the uh, at the intelligence agencies.
1: So in um, in 2001, we saw the situation involving uh, FBI agent Robert Philip Hansen, who was arrested for spying first for the Soviet Union and then later in Russia. You m- m- mention him in the book, and now we see this uh, incredible situation. In which a uh, the FBI's former top spy hunter in New York was charged with taking secret cash payments of more than two hundred twenty five thousand dollars, Charles McGonagall, from uh, a Russian billionaire Oleg Deripaska. Um, what what can be done? To improve the accountability uh, at these intelligence agencies, whether it's the NSA, the FBI, the the CIA, what can be done?
8: Well, you can start off by firing a few people. Um, That's just never been done. Uh, You know, in a corporation, you manage to lose a corporation uh, enormous amounts of money, millions or billions of dollars or whatever. People get fired. At the NSA, uh, the CIA and other agencies, if you lose all the material, if you get spies that are in your, uh, in your employ and so forth, nobody ever gets fired. Uh, the person who was in charge of NSA at the time of, uh, of losing all that material, uh, nothing ever happened to him. Um, when uh, uh, General Hayden, who was in charge of NSA at the time of 9-11, he totally missed 9-11. He watched the thing happen on his TV set like everybody else. He's in charge of the largest intelligence agency in the world. Uh, And then he got the Iraq war uh, completely wrong. He said Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, and he got promoted. Uh, So that's the first thing I would do is start uh, firing a few people or taking a few stars away or – Cutting pay or something. Well, and, you know, and it something. would seem
1: to me the same thing could be said of Robert Gates, the same thing could be said of George Tenet. Why does no one get fired, whether they're prominent people, uh, the heads of these agencies, or even sort of mid level or senior people that might have played a role in making misjudgments or uh, being kind of so negligent that something like uh, cyber weapons could go missing? Why does the system protect these bad actors or at least negligent actors?
8: I think it's just uh, uh the old boy network basically. Uh, you just uh you just don't fire them. I, I could come up with absolutely no logical reason for it except for um you know, we just don't like to fire our own people or whatever. Maybe it looks bad politically if we fire uh, fire somebody it means that somebody did a bad job or they'll bring more attention to the, the problem in the first place uh but that was uh one of the things that i just uh, emphasized in the book is the fact that this keeps going on and on and on and, and uh, nobody ever gets fired uh, as far as back as i could see i've never seen you know you've had the fbi has been infiltrated by moles first uh Robert Hansen for 20 years, and then this uh, Chinese mole that I wrote about. uh, As soon as Hansen was arrested in 2001, the Chinese came up with a mole uh, to plant in the FBI, and he wasn't arrested until 2020. Uh, So you had 40 years where the um, FBI was infiltrated by both, uh, well, one time for 20 years by a Russian mole, and then 20 more years for a Chinese mole, and the problem with the moles here is that it, they really do cause the death of of human beings, the uh, death of uh, sure. agents who have been cooperating with the CIA and, and, and in in Russia, in terms of uh, Hansen and also in China, in terms of uh, this uh, spy Alex Ma, who was arrested in 2020. One well, funny anecdote here is that uh, you know I do somewhat feel sorry for. Uh, For the uh, intelligence people trying to find moles, my job has always been, you know, covering the intelligence community. And one of the people who um, I got to know pretty well for a number of years was Robert Hansen, who was uh, the the top Russian spy. Uh, He was even at my wedding, believe it or not. Really? Um, Wow. Yeah. Uh, So uh, so all these years here I'm looking for spies and here's Hansen. So, uh, so, you know, the. Sometimes it's hard to find them. But then again, I was just a journalist. I wasn't a uh, counterintelligence agent. And the fact was that Hanson worked right down the hallway for for decades uh, from the director of the of the uh, FBI. So um, so the problem here is that you've got spies, you've got missing documents, you've got all these failures and uh, no accountability.
1: We're talking with James Bamford. His uh, new book is Spy Fail, Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. Uh, Jim, one of the things that a a lot of the Trump supporters uh, point to, and I don't know your politics, do you have a a, a strong political bent one way or another, Jim?
8: Um, Not really, no. In in my book, I criticize the Democrats, I criticize the Republicans, I criticize everybody, so... uh, so, no, I've never had a political... Got uh, it. So you're, not a, you're not a, dem- a, a you're
1: book. not a Democrat or a Republican partisan. But one no. of the things that the Trump people point to is a comment that Chuck Schumer made six years ago on MSNBC cautioning Donald Trump, and some would say warning Donald Trump not to be so public with his criticisms of the intelligence agencies. This is what Chuck Schumer said at the time.
9: You take on the intelligence community. They have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you. So... Even for a practical, supposedly hard-nosed businessman, he's being really dumb to do this.
1: Well, Chuck Schumer, who's now the uh, the Senate Majority Leader, has never really fully explained what he meant by that and how the intelligence agencies were going to get back at Donald Trump. From your research, uh, Jim, do the intelligence agencies have sort of, for lack of a better term, a history of vindictiveness, where even high-profile people that cross them end up in their crosshairs.
8: Well, that used to go back to the old uh, days of Jagger Hoover, who had a you know file cabinet full of uh, uh, blackmailable secrets on people and so forth. At least that's the um, the wise tale that uh, that goes back, and probably a lot of it's probably true. I haven't really seen. Uh, so much of that. uh, I don't know where Chuck Schumer was coming up with that. Uh, I mean, I do mention Chuck Schumer in my book because uh, uh, while the intelligence community and the FBI was out chasing every Russian they could find, uh, which weren't many on Russiagate, and they ended up coming up with nothing. um, During that entire time, the, the Clinton campaign was actually penetrated by two spies. They were from The UAE. Um, So uh, the the United Arab Emirates, uh, the crown prince there, sent two spies to infiltrate the Hillary Clinton campaign for the entire campaign. And it was uh, uh, a total success. The FBI never found them. They were out looking during Russiagate for for Russians, which they never found. And during that entire time, Hillary Clinton's campaign was uh, infiltrated. And it wasn't until a year after the campaign was completely over that they discovered that uh, there were spies there. The irony here is that uh, one of those spies, uh, Chuck Schumer, because they donated so much money in order to be close to Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer actually awarded uh, an honorary uh, award to one of the spies. Of course he did. Um,
1: (laughs) <laughs> of course, he did. He,
8: he, he, believe it or not, he actually made him uh, a part of a committee that looks into uh, uh, religions or something like that. It was so bizarre. I, uh, but it had nothing to do with anything except for the fact that. These two guys donated millions and millions of dollars to the Clinton Clinton campaign.
1: There are so many areas, more areas that I want to go into with you, and I hope you'll come back. But before we uh, get out of here, you alluded to the 2016 campaign. I was listening to Anthony Weiner on another show on our network uh, last night, and he has always said – that he believes that uh, the issue of his laptop in that 2016 campaign was improperly politicized. And he says there was nothing on the laptop, but uh, there were certain elements within the FBI that made it into something very nefarious and uh, one damaged the Clinton campaign, but also kind of made him a scapegoat in that instance. He said that this new church style committee, which the Republicans are hoping to establish looking at the intelligence community, he said that the Democrats in Congress would be well advised not to fight this, but to embrace it and actually look at this from both sides of the issue. How high are your hopes for what this church, this new church style committee can accomplish in the new Congress?
8: Well, I actually testified before the original church committee. So no, I know uh, that yeah. I'm quite familiar with the concept of the church committee and uh, the the entire U.S. Uh, or the entire uh, Senate and the House Intelligence Committee grew out of that. So it's a great opportunity for uh, the Democrats, uh, if they could just uh, uh, find a way to live with the Republicans, to uh, take advantage of this new committee, uh, the weaponization of intelligence, uh, and and uh, see what uh, they can do in terms of, uh, you know, improving it or, or repairing it. Again, as I mentioned in the book, uh, So many of these failures happened on the part of the the Democrats. They happened on the part of the Clinton uh, or rather the um, uh, Biden and uh, 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 Obama administration. So if you have all this happening on their administration, I think they have an obligation to start looking into how to correct these things.
1: Uh, lastly, Jim, I know that uh, that you were born in uh, Atlantic City. I get back to I get to Atlantic City quite a bit, and we speak about it quite a bit on the radio. When was the last time you were were in Atlantic City? Do you get back there often these days?
8: You know, I keep every year. I keep saying I got to go back to Atlantic City one of these days. Uh, I haven't been back there in a long time. I was there right around the time that they were converting it into uh, into. Um, um, a gambling mecca. Uh, I was born there long before that. So my memory of it uh, is a, a much more placid place. I the, can imagine. The steel pier and the boardwalk and uh, uh, the peanut man and all that kind of thing, the diving horse. So I didn't, you know, it, it. seeing all the gambling casinos sort of took away from that memory. So I didn't have any great desire to go back and um, and, you know, have those memories sort of, Tarnished to some
10: degree.
1: Well, uh, when you do get back, be sure to let me know. I'll meet you down there. Uh, James Bamford, I hope everybody checks out Spy Fail. And Jim, I hope you'll come back soon. I have uh, pages and pages worth of other questions I'd love to go into with you.
8: Great. I really appreciate it, Frank. Thanks very much for having me on your show.
1: Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you could give me a call, 1 800 848 9222. That's 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's another Ryan McCormick selection. Happy birthday, Ryan. Hopefully uh, your wishes all came true yesterday. And, um, you know, welcome to Groundhog Day Eve. Here we are. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Before Curtis Lewa starts spinning a different tale. I did take Carmine, my son, 14 months old, to the pediatrician yesterday for – he was due for some shots. Neither my wife nor me remember making this appointment, but they – we had it on our calendar, and they called us for a reminder. They said he was due for some some vaccini- vaccinations, and it's very interesting. You know, first, before you see the pediatrician, you see the doctor and um, – not the doctor, the – I don't know, PA or somebody – and she says, "All right, well, there's three or four vaccinations that he's due for. They're probably not going to give them all. We'll see what the doctor wants to do. One is another uh, measles, mumps, and rubella. One is uh, something else. One is uh, tetanus, and one is something else that i would never heard of. And uh, those are the three that she mentioned. I don't know if the doctor's going to give them all three, or give him two, or give him one, or what the story. All right, so the doctor comes in, and all the only vaccine he gives him is the chickenpox vaccine." That's the only one. Now, I mean, I was not going to make him get stuck with extra needles, but um, uh, you'd think that the PA and the doctor would be on the same page about what vaccinations he needs to get. But OK, then um, it turns out, in spite of what Curtis says, he is not uh, whatever, however many pounds that he's claiming that Carmine is. He was twenty three point eight pounds, but they weighed him with his shoes on. <laughs> Right. Which I feel like probably gave him a little extra weight and his clothes and they usually weigh him without any his clothes and without his shoes. So I feel like it was an unfair weight that they gave him. But they said I think he's in the 75th percentile for height and weight. He's 33 inches and they claim 23.8 pounds. So I'm glad he my father is 6'2 and my uh, wife's father was 6'2. I am I'm barely I think I'm 5'8". I'm very short, so I'm glad he seems to be (laughs) taking after his grandparents in terms of height, uh, at least at 14 months. We'll see where that goes. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we've covered thus far. Andrew McKenna still to come. Until then, keep asking questions.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. They're
1: running a strange program,
0: y'all. Now, here's Frank Marano.
1: I don't know about you, But after spending uh, an hour talking about a six-year-old shooting his teacher, the agencies that are supposed to be protecting us being totally incompetent and unable to do so, and a a 14-month-old child crying because he is uh, pricked with a syringe, I need to talk about something that is totally inconsequential and silly. So I had a list of all things that I was going to go over, at the start of this hour, uh, some of which are very important, some of which are very substantial, and maybe we'll get into that later because there are there are some interesting things, and I went to the trouble of researching them. May as well talk about them. But I'm taking what I was going to talk about here and tearing that up. And let me ask you this instead. What kind of font do you use? What's your favorite font? You type it something out. Maybe it's on a word processor. Maybe it's on a computer. Maybe it's in an email. Maybe it's in Microsoft Word. What do you use? What's your go-to? 800-848-9222. I'll tell you why I'm asking, and I'll tell you what I use. I am a Times New Roman guy. I am Times New New Roman through and through. And so much so that you want to know how much of a Times New Roman guy I am. The, the two major things that I type out are documents in Microsoft Word and documents in Google Docs because in case my computer craps out again, I want to have all these documents backed up in Google Docs. So whether it's a guest sheet, whether it's uh, notes for a guest that I want to make, whether it's an internal memo, whether it's a, a political matter, whether it's just notes for myself, whether it's a script, whatever the case may be, whether it's a draft of an email – I will write it out in uh, Microsoft Word generally first. Now, the de facto font for Microsoft Word, when I first start typing, at least the version I have, I don't know if this has been changed, the version that I have, the de facto font is something called Calibri, C-A-L-I-B-R-I. And even though it's all the same, the words all get typed out the same way, I will actually take the, the trouble and add 40 seconds more to my life, and change it to Times New Roman. To me, it looks cleaner. It looks more professional. It looks more adult. It looks easier to read. That's Microsoft Word. When I type out all my stuff, in, uh, including the show rundown, anything else, in Google Docs, the de facto font in Google Docs is Arial, A-R-I-A-L. I change that to Times New Roman for the same reason. So what's your font of choice and why? 800 848 I'll tell you what the State Department do, uh, is doing. Uh, this is a headline from Mashable. It's a website. The State Department is in turmoil over a font change. And Charles Townsend has a very interesting article. And it's, it's kind of humorous, but it's very interesting as well. And he writes that the looming possibility of the country defaulting on its debt could have far-reaching and dire consequences. But a second crisis has shaken the core of the State Department. A mandated font switch from Times New Roman, Roman to Calibri, starting in February, starting today, Calibri will replace Times New Roman as the default font for all documents at the State Department, what? and while we're all excited about this new development, a lot of folks are wondering why Calibri. Some people are saying there's a lot of other fonts out there. Why are you picking Calibri? So, the there the, these are big changes that are afoot at the State Department under Tony Blinken, and an email to the Washington Post. He uh, said that they're they're changing the font for high-level internal documents to be more readable for those with low vision. Well, see, I'm not convinced that Calibri is more readable for people with poor vision. The mandate comes at the suggestion of the Secretary's Office of Diversity and Inclusion. What? Why Why would the Office of Diversity and Inclusion have anything to do with font? Why is Calibri... A more inclusive font than Times New Roman. According to the Washington Post, this move, which is starting today, has not been well received within the State Department. The employees are complaining about the inconvenience of the change and the unesthetic font choice. One Foreign Service officer told the Washington Post that casual discussion on the font mandate ended up taking half the day. Between those for and against the change, another employee was quoted saying they expect an internal revolt. One officer even went so far as to say the switch is sacrilege. So I don't know how much of this is lighthearted banter and how much people are really worked up about. But the idea of federal employees spending half of their workday on heated discussions on fonts doesn't necessarily inspire confidence. This is also not the first time a switch like this has happened. In fact, Times New Roman was the sacrilege font back in 2004 when the State Department phased out the use of Courier New, uh, the typewriter font. You know, I actually like that typewriter font. Now that I'm thinking about it, there was something kind of a throwback about that Courier New 12, that typewriter font. Maybe let me see how that looks. Maybe I'll go back to that. Maybe I'll make that my de facto uh, font of choice. You know what it is? Here's why I use Times New Roman. It's right up there at the top. Oh, maybe it's up there at the top because it's um, recently used. Let me try that uh, Courier New. You know, I like that to Courier New. I may go with that. I may go with that. Tell me your font and why. 800 848 I think I may, might switch to Courier New. Although, I don't know, Times New Roman, it does have a certain appeal. So in 2004, they switched from Courier New to Times New Roman. Now, as of today, they are switching from Times New New Roman to Calibri. It is interesting what, what font you use does say a lot about you because there are certain people that I email. They're always not certain people, many people. They're always using the same font, and it's kind of their signature. I know, always know that I'm getting a font for them, and I don't know the names of all the fonts, but it's sort of like the Supreme Court's definition of pornography when you you know it when you see it, right? So, for instance, John Katsimatidis, when he and I email, I know that when he uses a certain font all the time. Same thing with uh, Curtis Lewa. At just about anybody that I email regularly with, there's a certain font that they use. Sometimes people just use the de facto Gmail font or whatever, you know, whatever email provider they happen to have. I'm trying to see what is the de facto Gmail font. The de facto Gmail font is sans serif. I guess once in a while I will use that. But more often than not, I will write out my email first in Microsoft Word. I will convert it to Times New Roman. Now I'm considering converting it to Courier New, and then I'll copy and paste it into my email, and then I'll send it over. What do you do and why? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Isaac in upstate New York has been patiently holding, though. Hello, Isaac. Hello, Frank. Isaac, do me a favor. Turn your radio off. We'll come back to you, okay? John is in Nevada. Hello there, John. John, I got you. Uh, Hello. John, going once. Uh, all right. I'm uh, not, not, not having any luck with. Um, oh, there, there we go. John, I got you now. Oh, God, see, this is what we missed. John snoring. <laughs> Don't interrupt his snoring. Wake up. Wake up! Ah! You know what's interesting about this snore? And look, a lot of people say I could put anybody to sleep. But what's interesting, John, you got, did I wake you? No. Okay. What's interesting about this snore is it's a very nasal snore, right? It's not a back of the throat snore. So, this tells me yeah. that uh th- you know sometimes there are snores that if, if you go from sleeping on your back to sleeping on your side or on your stomach, those snores go away. This is not one of those. this is very much in the nose. it sounds like it's I think John may have an issue with a deviated septum or something all right uh we'll we'll try and go back you can leave John up there We'll try and go back to uh to uh, to isaac in uh, upstate new york hello there isaac
11: hi frank i wanted to speak about
9: uh the gun thing
1: okay go ahead
9: um so i believe that just like when you want to open your phone you got to put in your your fingerprint or something like that so when you shoot a gun you should have to put in like you have to be registered fingerprinting that. So, yeah, I can't have any children going around taking gun and shooting it because they're not going to be registered.
1: Right. Well, that makes sense to me, right? Yeah. All right, Isaac. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate that. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Martin is in Sullivan County. Hello, Martin.
6: Hello. How are you? How are you, Frank?
1: I'm well. I appreciate you asking.
6: Yes. Um I wanted to tell you I guess wh- why are you changing your font? Why do you why do you think that anything changing your life does it have with the fact that you just have a baby or something? And you said earlier that it has a lot with what a person is.
1: I I'm not changing it. I've always used uh, Times New Roman. Uh I'm just now looking I, I never really thought to use courier new I knew I didn't like Arial, and I knew I didn't like Calibri, which are the default font, and I know I don't like Sans Serif, which are the default fonts for the three uh, entities that I type on the most, Gmail, Google Docs, and Microsoft Word. I am only now considering going from Times New Roman to Courier New because I looked at it, and I remember, oh, you know, it, it's kind of a throwback font. It's like, and I'm a throwback guy. I'm a nostalgia guy. I'm very retro. Correct, correct. So now yeah, I'm yeah, thinking get, about that. I,
6: no, I got you on that one. But the, do you think it adds to the fact that, like, you had a baby, so like you have like a new life now? Maybe. So, like you said maybe. Earlier, like a lot of people, you could tell what type of person he is through his fonts.
1: Maybe it's it's possible. You know, I'm sure. I know they have um, body language experts. They have handwriting analysts. I don't know that there are any font analysts that kind of uh, study the the psychological implications of what font people use. What font do you use, Martin?
6: So I'm not I'm not typing that much, but well, to the extent say, that you do type. I'm, no, I do. I'm I'm not typing that much, but whenever I am, I'm doing like pretty much the same as you. That's why I was wondering because I don't have any kids. Interesting. I was wondering if for that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, uh, well, very interesting, Tom, uh, Martin. I, I don't know if I'm going to make this uh, transition official, but uh, I'm leaving in. I'm leaning in that direction, but I'm sticking. I'm for today. I'm sticking with Times New Roman. I think. 800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-9222 Maples what do you use?
12: Now I use Arial but it has to be bolded. Why do you what why? Why do you use
1: Arial bold? I, I think
12: just cuz it's the normal Arial is too thin. I don't like that it's so thin. So I bolded it. I used to use I was a Verdana guy for a long time and then I did Helvetica for a little while.
1: Uh, let's see. Helvetica. Let me look at that. Which which one is the See, there are so many fonts. This is exciting. Uh to let's see, Helvetica. Does my thing not you have an you might
12: option? Not even I don't have an
1: option for Helvetica. What was the other one that Verdana. you mentioned? Verdana. Verdana. I have used Verdana. Let me see. What the oh, Verdana looks nice. Yeah. It looks a little too fancy for me. You know, it looks a little too... It's like wide.
12: It's kind of wide, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I don't like that. So that's I why like I that. kind of got tired of that. So now I just use Ariel but bolded because I, I don't like it. too. I don't like Courier or Times New Roman because it's like a typewriter. I, I don't like that. See, I like
1: the typewriter. Uh, you like, I like the, the old type... school yeah, look. Yeah, I'm an old school guy. Yeah. Um, so I'm staying with Times New Roman. Tomorrow I'm going to experiment with Courier New... And see how that uh, how that goes. Thank you. Thank. You. Uh, oh, oh, I disconnected John in Nevada. There. Sorry about that. 800-848-9222. What kind of font do you use, and why, Kenneth? What about you? What's your story? So I stick to the basic of Times New Roman mainly because I'm used to using it. We had to use it back in college for like every paper. It had to be like APA right. style. So so size twelve and Times New Roman. So but I just when you say stick to the basic, you do have to take an extra step to switch to Times New Roman. You have right. to change it. Well, I'm just used to having to do that, so that's I what I use all the time. Okay, fair enough. John is in Brooklyn. Uh, John, certainly a prolific writer. What do you use, John?
9: Well, Happy New Year, Frank. Well, it's
1: a little late. It's
9: February. It's too late, John. Well, no, not quite, because we just had our Chinese New Year's.
1: Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I stand corrected. I stand corrected. Uh, wh- this is the year of the rabbit?
9: I believe so. Yes. Okay,
1: well, happy birthday, uh, and no. to all the rabbits uh-huh. out there. Um, all right, so what's your font of choice, John?
9: As a writer, you have to use Times New Roman because that's what uh, potential publishers want.
1: What do so you think of sending the,
9: out manuscripts?
1: What do you think of the State Department making this change?
9: I don't know what to think. I, I think they're, they they just want to add some more money. <laughs> um, and maybe they just want to be, shall we say, less formal.
1: Okay. Well, I it, don't know. Is um, Calibri less formal? I guess it is less formal. It, certainly it less formal looking.
9: I mean, when I used to email you. You would get all my emails in Calibri, and I still use that as my – well, I think that's my default, anyway, option in in Microsoft.
1: So you don't change it. You'll write out your email in whatever the default is, which in this case is Calibri, and you don't change it like I do to Times New Roman, for instance.
9: Interesting. But if I'm sending out a document for possible publication – uh, they will say, we want, want it in Times New Roman. Well, that's and,
1: interesting. So you have different fonts depending on the circumstance and the situation. Right. Interesting. All right. Thank you, John. Happy New Year to you. Uh, Alex Barnard weighing in via SMS text message, and you can SMS text message me at eight one six eight 8 morano He writes, I agree with you. First time for everything. I'm a Times New Roman guy. It's what I was forced to use in school, and ever since then, it's just become my default. Well, So I do want to be very careful with the language that um, Kenneth and Alex Barnard are using because Kenneth is saying, oh, I keep it basic. Uh, Alex is saying it's my default. And those descriptions almost make it sound like you just type and it's there. For those of us, and I think all three of us at least at this point are in the same boat, the Times New Roman boat – uh, which up until today was what the State Department was using, we have to take an extra step to convert two times new Roman, So we're actually giving ourselves more work. So Kenneth calls it basic. Alex calls it default. I realize he's saying it's his default. But there's there's an extra step that we're going to for that. What extra step are you going to and why? 800 848 Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi. That's
13: interesting. Thank you. The typewriters, uh, uh, the typewriter styles, and that's what I'm used to, like the uh, Courier and uh, also what's called Elite. I uh, like those; they're very readable for
1: me. Elite. Uh, I let like me see. What, let me see what Elite looks like. Um, Elite. Does Microsoft Word have Elite? Mm, I don't. Yeah, I don't see a. El- oh, uh, yeah, I don't see
13: Elite. Okay. Well, maybe that's uh, been deleted
1: <laughs> hey that's a, could be could be so you use elite and what's your other the new the courier Curry, um, you like Curry. Usually
13: a 12 point i like the 12
1: 12 i like 12 too i like 12 too sometimes i'll go for a full 14 depending on my mood but uh all right well i appreciate your candor there robert very very big yeah, of you it's to, easier to read and it's more like what you read in books Actually. Right, right, and I find that that that's that's what Times New Roman is to me. That's kind of the the font that you do see in the typeface that you do see in a book, and uh, that's why I like that. I'm I'm sticking with that. Thank you. Well, I don't know if I'm sticking with it. I'm on the fence between. Tr- I'm going to do 24 hours of Courier New, and see how it works out for me, and then uh, otherwise, I'm staying with uh, Times New Roman. Anna writing in via email saying Times New Roman is always a good choice and that fonts are a big deal. Then she adds, "Currently I like Verdana, that's one uh, a Matt Blaze fan, and Avenir Light." Let's see, what is Avenir Light? Let me see what that looks like. Avenir Light. See, there's too many, f- well, I don't want to say there's too many. F- I see Avenir next, Avenir next Light. Oh, here, a- Avenir next light pro ah, not for me not for me no way i'm going to uh try my 24 hours of courier new so for the next 24 hours if you email me i will probably write you back in courier new if i remember otherwise it'll be the default of whatever gmail is although i'm sure i could change my default i'm gonna work on that all right 800-848-9222 uh coming up next hour andrew mckenna is here Former drug addict, former federal prosecutor, former federal prisoner, a Marine, and now somebody that's working very hard to help people who are battling drug addiction. There's a lot of problems, a lot of questions about drug abuse in this country and in the world. We're going to get into it with Andrew McKenna next hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: This is uh, the Jay Giles band, Centerfold, a tribute to Ryan McCormick. There are a shocking number of people who are writing to me on this font issue. Not surprising to me, because people that are into fonts are probably more likely to write. Gene uh, writes, the best font, in my opinion, is Verdana, to give it a little slant. Uh, Neil writes, in New York City, when you file papers in the courts, and I didn't know this, but it makes sense. When you file papers in the courts, they must use Times New Roman font. Otherwise, the papers are rejected. Gene further adding, Times New Roman is archaic. Archaic. Courier New was a step in the right direction, but Verdana rules. Hands down. Uh, other people sending me some samples of Sans Serif. Uh, a lot of people very, very into this font subject. Uh, Michael is calling from his bedroom. Hello, Michael.
6: Frank, I'm thinking of typography tonight, and I'm thinking of a pika. Why?
1: Because I find you very often to be pika Ah, not bad, Michael. You are uh, the great pontiff of our time. Uh, Not bad. Not bad. Hey, um, we want to encourage you to listen to the podcast of this program if you ever miss any portion of it. You can just search uh, the other side of Midnight on iTunes or any podcast app. And if you don't have time to listen for the full four hours... You can uh, listen to Frank Morano interviews and more. Those are just the guest interviews and some of my local commentaries. Same thing. You could search that on uh, iTunes or Spotify or any podcast app, or you could just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Additionally, for those of you that don't think four hours of this program is enough, the crew of our show, Kenneth Alex Barnard and Matt Blaze, they host sort of an after show called The Darker side of midnight which is available through all those same platforms uh matt how is that going from your perspective are you guys tired of this yet
12: no no we're just getting started
1: tired i you know they
12: we have to do they they're they're asking us to keep it between 20 and 30 minutes and i'm having a hard time just keeping it to 20 to 30 minutes because i could do an hour and a half
1: Yeah, you know, I don't get that. I don't know why they are stressing brevity because I would think that, you know, the podcast format allows you to do all sorts of things in terms of ignoring time limits that radio doesn't. And if you look at a lot of the more successful podcasts, I'm thinking people like um, Conan O'Brien, Jocko Willink, uh, uh, you know, uh, Joe Rogan, they go on for four or five hours, you know, talking to one person. Right. so why, why are they so married to that format of on twenty or thirty minutes?
12: I don't know they, they that's just what they told us, so I'm abiding or trying to abide by the rules of not going over thirty minutes, trying, okay, but it's hard, but no, it's going very well. I'm not tired of it. We like talking about it. We talk about stuff that you talked about, we talk we give our take on certain things. Uh, and um, you know, have our fun, so to speak. All right.
1: Well, you know, uh, there you go. Uh, so far, how's the feedback that you're getting from folks?
12: So far, so good. So far, so good. Uh, we're what ten, eleven episodes in now. So uh, every day, right after this show, at five fifteen a.m., we are on uh, recording.
1: All right. Well, that's uh, that's certainly something. All right. Now, for those of you that are just hard up for any Morano-related content to listen to. I also have a podcast of things that we don't, don't really discuss on this show, and that's issues related to organized crime and the mob. It's called The Racket Report, and I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to it. You could find it on iTunes. Just search The Racket Report, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere podcasts are available. And I had a very interesting guest in the interview that was just posted a few hours ago. My guest was Rita Giganti. Rita Giganti is the daughter of Vincent Chin Giganti and the niece of Father Louis Giganti, the priest slash former city councilman who all sorts of stuff has come out about him. She wrote a book called The Godfather's Daughter. Now, Vincent Cingiganti was the one that would run around Greenwich Village in a bathrobe pretending that he was crazy. I'm currently doing that same thing in my my hometown, in my neighborhood. I run around all over town in a bathrobe. You come to my house or see me outside of my house, pretty much any time before I leave for work, I am in a bathrobe. And I'm setting up that insanity defense. If I am ever arrested, whether it's for racketeering or anything else— I am going to make the case that uh, I'm – you know, it's not me. It's the insanity defense and uh, ask anybody that's seen me in a bathrobe. We'll see how it works out for me. But it worked out for a while for Vincent uh, Gigante. So anyway, there are uh, a lot of interesting things about Rita Gigante's life. And I think the first two questions that everybody has for her, when did you know your father was in the mob? When did you think he was crazy? When did you know he wasn't crazy? And did you help? Did you help perpetuate a fraud on the public by walking him around in his bathrobe? But there's one very interesting aspect of Rita's life that is atypical for mafia daughters. And that's the fact that she's gay. She grew up in a very old fashioned Italian Catholic family and her father happened to be a gangster. And she would hear the kind of things that he would say about gay people when he saw them on television or saw them in real life what was it like to come out of the closet especially 40 something years ago to a gangster the head of the genovese crime family vincent Gigante? that's one of the questions that i asked rita giganti a lot of folks are going to wonder when your father learned that you were gay uh, when did you tell him that or when did he learn I don't know what, honestly,
14: what gave me the balls to do it, but the day I did it, he was visiting my home in Alto Pan, New Jersey, and I um, had just picked that day. I was 19, and I um, was standing outside the bedroom door of my mom and dad, and I knocked on the door, and they asked me to come in, and I'm sitting on the bed, and I'm shaking. My hands are sweating, and um, I'm just, you know, they know something's wrong. They could see it and so they said to me what what's wrong what's the matter and i said i have something to tell you and, and they said okay you know what is it and i said i like women you know i'm i'm gay i like women and honestly it would have been the best thing that could have happened was he would have got up and slapped me because then mm-hmm. i would have known something was you know like like it it would have been the real real thing for him right he took the most opposite approach i i Never thought he would remain so calm, which scared the out of me. Um, He remained so calm, and he just said to me, look, you know, kids your age, they experiment. They go through things. They, you know, you're just going through a phase. It'll go away. You're just going through a phase. And, you know, I I, and I saw the look, you know, my dad had this kind of look, and I saw the look, and, you know, I saw my mother looking at him. Almost strangely, too. And I was like, I'm in deep here.
1: That it was the tip of the iceberg. This was a fascinating conversation. And uh, I do hope that you will uh, give it a listen. I've just linked to it on my Facebook page at com slash Morano fan. You can listen to it after the show. I've just linked to it on Twitter at Frank Morano. But what you should really do is subscribe to The Racket Report. Just search The Racket Report wherever podcasts are available, and you'll get a new version uh, to your mobile phone or your iPod, if you still have an iPod, as soon as they post them. Just hit the subscribe button. If you want to help us out, you can leave a nice review and a nice comment that will help more people discover the podcast. All right. Talking fonts here and a wide variety of other subjects, 1-800-848-9222. Joe is in Manhattan. Hello, Joe.
10: Hi. Uh, Frank, yes. how are you doing? I hope you're doing very well and thank your you, family you. members and so forth. Uh, listen, regarding fonts, I got hooked on fonts a few years ago because I couldn't sort of decide which font to standardize, you know, uh, in my typing, et cetera, right? I did use old-fashioned Olivetti typewriters, et cetera, in the past years, right? Then when I got to computers, right, I uh, simply couldn't uh, decide because there's so many, many, many of them available. Now, I've arrived at a couple of conclusions. Number one, it has to be very legible, uh, 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 legible. And available is important, too, but they're all available, basically, most of them uh Microsoft for instance provides quite a uh, uh you know option.
1: Yeah, no, I'm looking uh, through them here. It's wild.
10: Now, let me tell you the ones that are not good. The ones that are uh with uh for example, uh, uh, all of them that are sawn, uh, they are better because they're more readable, they're more uh, legible. I'm
1: not sure I understand what you mean. What do you mean, sawn? What is that? Uh,
10: because the simpler they are, the uh, m- uh, better uh, uh, they are in terms of the person who reads the information you're providing.
9: Right. Right.
10: All right. So, uh, uh, So, for example, the ones that you mentioned... Uh, Calibri, uh, uh, Calibri, was it? Calibri, they're yeah. Standardizing with the right. government or something like that? Mm-hmm. All right, now that is um, mediocre, you know? Times New Roman you mentioned originally. Right, that's my that's go-to not... font. Yeah, but that... Um, uh, but Verdana is clearer to read. You think and so? Another th- I don't agree. Ariel is clearer to read because they are... Uh, song, um, uh, they're simpler. They're sawn. Uh, what is that uh, term, uh, a French term or uh, Latin? Son, uh, uh They don't have those uh, extraneous marks on them. Uh, uh, he would know the gentleman who works with you. Then there is the Verdana, which is pretty good. I mentioned Georgia Verdana. Mm-hmm. They're similar. Verdana is pretty similar uh, to uh, Tahoma for example uh, uh but uh, uh, to, uh but Verdana is very clear to read somebody mentioned I was listening so, you know? so Joe what is verdana. your what
1: is your go to font Would you use verdana
10: okay uh, uh, then there uh, right now I'm using uh I'm using Verdana, but I don't pay too much attention uh as long as I see that the font is uh, legible. And uh, it's not complicated because the fancier it is, the worse it is for the person who's going to read it right. on the other end. You're right. Yeah, no, you I know. would
1: never send something in one calligraphy. One more point.
10: Right. Right. Frank, one more point I have to make. Sure. The gentleman, I think, uh, uh, is it Matt who works with you?
1: No, he's I not a
3: gentleman.
10: He... Oh, all, right. <laughs> all right. Uh uh, uh, somebody mentioned right who was discussing with you over there. Uh, I think in the studio, he prefers bold, uh, but aerial, bold. Right,
1: right, right. Now
10: there's a problem with that because when you make it bold, it takes up unnecessary space. Yeah, well, it
1: would it that, wouldn't surprise me that Matt Blaze makes things uh, makes people take up unnecessary space. That doesn't surprise me at up all. The space. Yeah, no, I believe it, capacity. Joe. Joe, thank you. Appreciate it. Julia is in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, Julia, what station are you listening to us on out there? I'm actually streaming you on the Internet. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. Well, the more the merrier. Thanks for listening.
15: Okay. So um, the thing is here I've had, I've retired from a 30-year career in textbook publishing. And um, as far as fonts went, whenever um, it was... Especially in math books, it was always preferred to use – well, in that case, it was called Times Roman. New Times Roman is because Microsoft renamed it not to – futz with the copyright issues.
1: Oh, is that right? Wait, so Times Roman – was the same, or uh, it looks the same as Times New Roman, the only reason they changed the name, it's like table tennis and ping pong, the only reason they changed the name was because of a copyright issue? Yes. Wow, I had no idea, wow.
15: And um, also for numbers, if we were doing a math book, they would use Times Roman for the text, but always Helvetica for the numbers. Because... They claimed that Helvetica in numbers was easier to read, and so was Times Roman. Times, they always preferred a a serif text to a non, to a sans serif text. I see. Yeah. um, They said it was easier to read. As far as my, oh, wait, okay. I just want to ask you this before I forget this question. Is there any way in the settings to change the default to what it is you like? Well, that's only
1: have? that's what I'm wondering. I'm going to look into that for my uh, email. I'm sure there is. I know uh, there used to be, you know, with the uh, predecessors to the new
15: Windows stuff, uh, you know, like XP I know had it. Um, I think Windows 10 allowed you to do it, but I'm not. I'm not certain.
1: So I'm looking now in Gmail. Uh, there is a way to do it. It's in the settings, and then you scroll down to Default Text Style section, and then you can change it that way. I'm going to do that actually once we go to break. But um, but uh, I'm I, and I'm sure there is in all these other uh, formats as well. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna experiment with that. So Julia, what is your go-to font? What do you use regularly?
15: Well. If I'm writing something formal or a business letter or something like that, I I always use uh, Times New Roman. You do. However, a fun font that I love to use when I'm writing a more friendly email or or letter is um, something – call cool. i don't know if they did away with it or not comic comic sans
1: <laughs> yeah i know people that do that i don't use that right be, just because it does come across as um and i get what, why you're going for it because you're trying to have fun with it it does come across a little silly so i usually don't uh use that but i totally get where you're uh, where you're coming from uh, on that one uh julia thank you very much for the call thanks for listening appreciate your calling hope you call again Thank you, Frank. All right, appreciate that. And uh, lastly, I, I think we've exhausted the font conversation, but we'll let Steve on Long Island have the last word. Hello, Steve.
11: Okay. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Comic Sans because I use Comic Sans predominantly because it kind of mimics my my penmanship. I was never great at script or ah. if I'm dating myself, calling it cursive. So uh, I feel I. I like the comic Sans because it kinda of mimics my uh my penmanship. And also I feel, you know, in the pressure cooker that we live in today, um, I think that casual font uh it loosens everybody up and um I I just find the like the Times New Roman uh the Times uh Roman uh numeral uh, it's kind of rigid and uh like I said, uh for me it's kind of uh, just trying to evoke an emotion that relaxes people and although it may be may not be as legible um sometimes not being as legible makes people more attentive when they're reading it well that's uh, uh, that's an interesting
1: that's
11: point yeah kind of yeah, yeah. Drive home
1: your message a little bit better. Yeah, well said, uh, Steve. I asked why people use which font you gave. As good a reason as anything I've heard. Thank you. You know, I'm in Gmail now. I'm trying to change my default text style. It does not give me Times Roman as an option. It gives me sans serif, which is what Gmail provides, serif, fixed width, which looks kind of Courier New-ish, it doesn't give me Courier New as an option either. It gives something called Wide Narrow Comic Sans MS Garamond Georgia Tahoma Tribuchet MS and Verdana. I don't like that at all. Why doesn't it give me the option of uh, Times New Roman on uh, on the the Gmail default text? Uh, see, if I, I wish I could write a letter to someone at Gmail. Why can't I I mean try and get somebody on the on the horn over there? All right, I'm gonna use Georgia because Georgia lo- no, I'll use fixed width. That looks like uh that looks like courier new. I'm using that. That's my default on email from now on. Save changes, boom, bop, done. All right, uh eight hundred eighty 22 I will tell you, so yesterday was an interesting day. I don't know what it is, right? But for whatever reason. Normally, when I get home, I uh, just I just collapse, right? I mean, it's a struggle to keep my eyes open until I make it upstairs to my bedroom. Yesterday, I got home around 6.15, 6.30. I go to bed, and sure enough, maybe it was that call the other day asking how I fall asleep, but I couldn't fall asleep. I couldn't fall asleep, and for the life of me, I, I didn't get very much sleep the night before, so I can't really understand Why? And then I came to a theory as to why I couldn't fall asleep. I take a lot of vitamins and a lot of supplements throughout the day. And um, who knows? Maybe it's not doing anything for me. Maybe it is. I don't know. But I take everything. I take vitamin C. I take vitamin B12. I take vitamin B6. I take folic acid. I was – when we were doing the ads for uh, GetTheTea.com, they sent me a whole bunch of supplements. I take every single one of them. And they all have a whole bunch of things in them, uh, uh, turmeric. Um, everything, you know, a probiotic, prebiotic. I take everything that there is as a, as a nutritional supplement, but I usually take all of those before I leave the house. Right. Last night. Now, as I've mentioned, Curtis is setting up a, um, a, a, he's basically setting up a, a camp, a camp in that office. He's basically becoming Russia. He's just gradually expanding outward. Oh, look, there's Crimea. Let me take that. Oh, uh, le- le- there's uh, there's Ukraine. Let me take that. Oh, a little, a little piece of Poland, a little piece of uh, uh, France, a little piece of Austria. All right. So he's, he's expanding outward in this office. And I see, you know, because Curtis is the one person who keeps the same kind of weird hours that I do and always has to be, you know, on his A game. He's got these vitamins in there. And he's got some men's multivitamins, and I've I've tapped into that before. But he also has a big old jar of gummy B12s. And I'd already taken a B12. But I said, what the heck? I didn't get a lot of sleep yesterday. Let me take a B2. Let me take two of his B12s. I think I took two. And I, I really didn't, I wasn't cognizant of any difference, but sure enough, I didn't consume any more coffee. I could not fall asleep when I got home. And I'm wondering. If the B-12 played a role. So I do my thing. I'm lying there in bed. My wife's starting her day. And then my son is awake. And if I'm awake when my son is awake, obviously I want to spend some time with him. And then I take, you know, my wife says to me, because I had to take Carmine to the doctor yesterday afternoon. She says, you're going to have to get some sleep. At this point, it's now 8.30, 9 o'clock. And um, she says, uh, you're going to have to do something to get some sleep. At least a few hours. So I take not one, but two melatonin and, and I'm not recommending this, consult with your physician or your sleep professional, and a a shot of uh, whiskey. Tom Brodo, who came to my house for that disaster of a giant game, brought a couple of nice bottles of whiskey. I tap into this bourbon that he brought. (laughs) Lo and behold, I was asleep. But I was dead to the world. To try and wake up at 2.45 or so in time to take my son to the doctor's appointment, it was tough. So I take him to the doctor, and then I'm spending time with him until about 5.30 when my wife's done with work. And then um, my wife is cooking dinner, so I still have to – not have to. It's a pleasure, but I am still tasked with entertaining my son and looking after him. So really, I haven't had much of an opportunity to work on the show. I did get to work on it from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern when my wife took Carmine with her to run a couple of errands. But then she comes back and we're having dinner. And then after dinner, you know, after we clean up and everything, by that point it's 8 o'clock. And I've gotten very little work done for the show. And I'm still – and I'm exhausted. And so you have to balance. And I'm trying to just run on this treadmill of email that I catch up with. And what I do is – I, the way I organize, and this is kind of maybe my own OCD, is let's say I have 100 emails remaining in my inbox. I have a list of 14, hypothetically, show items that I have to get done. Select music. Write the trivia questions. Book guests. Prepare for the interviews. Prepare the local commentaries. Promotion. Monologues. rundown. Whatever, you know, uh, audio selection. You know, there's a whole bunch of things. It's usually about 14 or 15 different items. And then I have a whole bunch of non show tasks that I have to get done. You know, uh, sending the money for JFK's bachelor party, send so and so a thank you note. So, what I'll do is I'll organize my to do list on the basis of how I'm going through my emails. So, at 90, when I have 90 emails left, that's when I'll make the list. You know, if you've seen the movie Office Space, they call it planning to plan. That's when I'll make the list of what I have to do for the show. Then at 80 emails left, I'll do a show task. At 70 emails left, I'll do a non-show task. 60, I'll do a show task. So that's how I kind of organize it. And it's basically, it's it's very stressful because you're racing through these emails and you're racing to get the show tasks done and the non-show tasks. So... It's now, and I was, uh, my wife's asking, well, do you want to watch a movie or something? Because she knows I'm trying to watch these Oscar-nominated movies. I said, I don't think I can. I have to do this. I'm way behind on the show prep. And then I'm pretty tired still because I still only got about, you know, however many hours, five hours. And uh, I'd like to try and get a nap. So there's always a balance between you want to get enough of the show done so that you're at least somewhat prepared. But you also want to be well-rested enough. To be able to get it done. So at around um, 9 o'clock or 8, 8.45 or so, I forced myself to stop and grab for a 45-minute nap, took a shower, and, uh, and came in. But it was a very odd sleep day. Now, today, I can't imagine what that's going to be like because I'm scheduled to get a haircut appointment at 8 o'clock. And you know what a disaster it is every time this tries to work out. So at the very l- – I'm thinking I might just stay up. For the, until 8 a.m. to get the email done, at least get some headway made on that email and work on Thursday's show. And then if I sleep a little later, because I'm getting to bed a little later, maybe I'll, I'll at least have, uh, I won't be buried in email for the start. By the way, if you want to email me and add to the pile of email that I'm digging through, you could do so. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com Alright, 800 848 22 We'll continue with your call straight ahead.
0: other side at midnight. 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 midnight it's the other side at midnight with frank Morano. time goes by so slowly time
5: goes by so slowly time goes by, so slowly. Time goes by.
1: The great Madonna. She's getting ready to go back on tour. And, uh, you know, she's upsetting a lot of people because they had to cancel, at least for now, her biopic, which is set to star Julia Garner, who's the blonde woman who plays Ruth, I believe, on Ozark. And this canceled biopic has already cost Universal Pictures more than $10 million. Can you imagine that? before the singer scrapped it to focus on her upcoming tour. Now who knows if this is accurate? I mean these people aren't seeing the finances inside Universal Pictures, but if that's true, uh, you know that's tough. that's tough. My uh, siblings went to high school with Madonna's daughter and they didn't have much dealings with Nirvana, with Madonna but they said the um, they said her daughter was super nice. Oh, one th- quick thing. Someone um, that I invited, one of our listeners, I don't think it's someone I ever met, but uh, someone that I invited to New Year's uh, Eve Eve, maybe I did, I don't remember, but so they, um, they got my email invitation, I don't know, it's Fred is this gentleman's name, and he writes me back yesterday and says, sorry I couldn't make the New Year's Eve Eve party, I really wanted to. We're in AC most New Year's. Please don't let this affect future requests from me. The shows have been great, and I love the Facebook group. My, my wife and I were going to come home, but this changed our plans a bit at Borgata. And then he shows me a photo of two Queen of Hearts, and then he placed the bet at, on Blackjack on the Lucky Ladies, $50 on the Lucky Ladies. Do you know what two a pair of Queen of Hearts pays on the Lucky Ladies? That pays a thousand to one. So, this listener of mine won $50,000 betting the lucky ladies and getting the pair of Queens of Hearts. I was so pleased to see that. If anybody should win at gambling, it's my listeners. I love this. And I'm betting if I ever run into Fred in Atlantic City, there's a good chance he'll buy me a drink. So, I, I got to schedule a trip to Atlantic City. I'm jonesing for a trip back. It's been over a month. All right. Until next hour, your influence counts. Make sure you use it This is one of those days where I wish we had a fifth hour to do this show. There's just, there's too many subjects that I want to touch upon to get to in only four hours. So uh, I I really, you got to write to your local stations listening to this. Tell them that you want a fifth hour of this program. I'm very much on the fence about what I'm going to. All right, let me do this. I am a uh, lifelong political independent. And evidently, I am not alone. At least, not for very long. And sometimes it feels lonely because there are um, there are conservative networks, there are liberal networks, but there's really no independent networks. I mean, News Nation, I guess, is trying to carve out that niche. Uh, CNN, under the leadership of Chris Licht, is kind of trying to carve out that niche. And so far, uh, I haven't watched much of News Nation, but uh, so far I think um, the jury's still out on any changes that CNN is actually making to service independent voters. But if you're a Republican, there are all sorts of local Republican clubs you can go to. There's Democratic clubs you can go to. There's not a lot of great clubs for independents. But um, here's what's interesting. There's some new data. Uh, You know, Jesse Ventura wrote a wonderful book. When he was governor, it was called Do I Stand Alone? It was, I think, his second book. Uh, Yeah, Do I Stand Alone? Maybe it was his third book. No, second, whatever. It was one of his early books. Do I Stand Alone? Going to the Mat Against Political Pawns and Media Jackals. Yeah, it was his second book. Really well done. Great book. And I bought it in part because that's the way that I felt. This is a book that's 23 years old. I felt... You know, asking the question, am I the only one? Am I the only one that rejects the kind of the Democrips and the Rebloodlicans that are running the government? That's another Jesse Ventura term I'm borrowing. And um, the answer is I may be feeling lonely now. But if these voting trends continue, I won't be alone for long. I want to bring this to your attention. The youngest voters in the country are rejecting both parties and going independent. This is a rebellion against this age of extreme partisanship. Now, the old and it's not like we've seen this in years past. You know, it used to be that younger voters used to be liberals. That's not unusual. Remember, Churchill used to say, if you're not liberal at 20, you have no heart, and if you're not conservative at 40, you've got no brain. There Now, if you look at the data from Gallup, 41% of young voters, millennials and Generation Z, now view themselves as independent. If you compare that to people in that age group, Uh, Back in 2010, that wasn't the case. Uh, That was it was about in 2010. It was about 35 percent. If you go back to the year 2000, they were they were a little less. They were 30 percent. You go back to 1990. It was very clear. The most popular registration for young people was Democrat. And then independent and Republican were tied. And the gulf has widened in young people choosing to register as independents. Just one-third of baby boomers said they were independent to Gallup polling before the midterm elections, compared to 52% for both millennials and Generation Z. So if you look at this line graph, you see Americans were pretty much evenly divided between the two major parties um but a plurality of young people 41% now identify as independent and this trend if you want to read the gallup report i'm going to link to it right now on my facebook page at facebook.com/moranofan that's facebook.com/moranofan this trend began in 2009 and uh, that when gallup began conducting interviews Exclusively by phone back in 1998, the U.S. had similar proportions of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Millennials and now Generation Z have always been fiercely independent, especially when it comes to politics. That's the word from John Delavolpe, the director of polling at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics. Here's my question for you at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Do you think these changes will last? As these young people, these Generation Zers, these millennials, as they become people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, do you see them staying as independent? Or do you see them as, you know, as they make more money, as they get married, as they worry about buying a house, as they... Uh, start thinking about their retirement. Start needing to uh, do things like uh, pay health insurance premiums. Do you see them moving towards one of the two major parties, Republican or Democrat? Why or why not? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I I find this very exciting. I have to tell you, and I am somebody that have to- uh, that has toiled in the fields of third-party politics and politically independent politics for a long time. And I was listening yesterday. Sid Rosenberg interviewed somebody, or two days ago, somebody that was just on this show, Joe Lieberman. And Joe Lieberman is involved in this no-labels group which is working to qualify a third-party candidate in the event that there is a Biden versus Trump rematch. And a lot of people don't want Biden or Trump, so no labels is working to qualify an alternative, even though they don't have a candidate yet, but they're getting ballot access in a whole bunch of states already. And I'm wondering, you know, you always hear the refrain, oh, you know, third-party candidates can't win, can't win, can't win. And for the most part throughout American history, especially at the presidential level, that's been true. I'm wondering if these numbers hold, and if these young people that are telling Gallup that they're not Democrats, they're not Republicans, that they're rejecting the two parties, if these young people stay as independent, could that truism that third party and independent candidates never win, could that change? Could that change if these people actually start voting like independents, not just call themselves independent? What do you think? 800 848 Roughly 40% of the 2024 electorate comprised of these two generations, millennials and Generation Z, they, have an under, they, they understand uh, that th- there's a need to mobilize the independent young voter. And I do wonder what Joe Biden and Donald Trump, neither of whom are young, neither of whom are independent – If those two end up being the two major candidates, what are they going to do to reach out to young, independent voters? They say um, Democrats, what they need to do is, unlike independent baby boomers, unaffiliated millennials and Zoomers, they have leaned Democrat in the last few elections, mostly because of social issues. And they say Democrats need to convert recent Republican chaos and Biden's... um, triumphs on things like uh, student loans and uh, infrastructure into respect for their party. They say what the Republicans need to do is convince millennials and Zoomers that they're listening and share some of those same values. And that they say that starts with a respect for individual rights and freedom, especially on issues like abortion. But as Axios reports, young voters skew liberal. But Democrats really can't take them for granted. President Biden's approval rating, for instance, with young voters, is a lowly 39 percent. That was before the midterms, according to the Harvard Institute of Politics Youth. But I am a youth poll. I am curious where you think these numbers go. Do Do you think that these young people will remain independent, or do you think they'll choose one of the major parties? Why or why not? 800 848 That's 1 eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. want to thank Lee Mason, John Bachelor's former producer. She sent me an SMS text message. She said, I believe the correct pronunciation of sans serif is sans serif. Sans serif. Not sans serif. I like sans serif. It almost sounds like Omar Sharif. Right? I like that. Sans serif. Uh, you know, until there's a uh, pronunciation guide that comes along with the font. I am sticking with um, Sans Serif. Andrew McKenna is going to join us in about 10 minutes. Andrew McKenna is uh, a great guy. He's a friend of mine for a long time. He's been a guest on this show before. He has been a Marine. He's been in the Air Force. He's been a bank robber. He's been a federal prosecutor, a federal prisoner. And so much of his life has been changed by the fact that he was a heroin addict. And now – oh, he's written a great book. It's uh, called Sheer Madness. It's a few years old, but it's one of the best um, memoirs that I've ever read. But now so much of his work deals with helping people battle drug addiction and get over and overcome their issues, issues with addiction. There's a ton of issues related to drug addiction addiction in the news, and we're going to talk about them with Andrew in just a few minutes. But um, there was one story, just speaking of issues that I've always resonated independent on, and this is one of the things that first attracted me to Ross Perot. The national debt is something that is very difficult to make sexy, right? Uh, John Katsimatidis, I think, always, he cites the statistic that there are uh, 100 or 200 million voters in the country, maybe, and maybe 10 million of them genuinely care and understand the national debt. Maybe that's true. Do you know though how much we spend on interest on the national debt? Do you have any idea? They estimate that we spend uh, that we spent last year 399 billion dollars on interest in, on the national debt. That's money that's just Flush down the toilet. It's not used to pay one soldier. It's not used to uh, uh, build one highway. It's not used to provide health care to any one person. It's just interest payments on the debt. What's scary, though, is that that number, because our debt problem is so out of control, that number is expected to triple over the coming decade, soaring from $442 billion to $1.2 trillion dollars. In that period, that's extraordinary. I mean, you think about it, we're going to be in a place soon where we're spending a trillion dollars just on debt payments. Now, you might ask where does that money go? Who's getting those interest payments? Who's making the money lending it to the government? The answer is a whole bunch of people, including China and including a whole bunch of very wealthy Americans. There was, um, it used to be that everybody used to talk about the debt, right? Republicans, Newt Gingrich, uh, independents like Ross Perot, even Democrats like Bill Clinton. And it's always when, um, that leaves out so much of the story though, right? Um, The bigger and more important story that you really haven't heard behind today's federal debt is the fact that there was a time when a lot of the debt was financed by taxes on the wealthy. and Initially, the income tax only applied to the wealthy. But over the last half century, we've gone from a situation where the wealthy pay taxes to the government instead to getting giant checks from the government because they're lending the government money. And this is a story, and Robert Reich wrote about this in his column This week. This is a story that needs to be told if Americans are to understand what's really happened and what needs to be done about it. And I don't hear Democrats or Republicans talking about it. So, a half century ago, Americans' wealth, uh, the, the wealthy people in the country, financed the federal government through their tax payments. Tax rates on the wealthy were high. Under Dwight Eisenhower, they were over 90%. Even after all tax deductions, The wealthy typically paid about half their incomes in taxes. Since then, the effective tax rate on wealthy Americans has plummeted, even as they've accumulated a lot of wealth. One of the big reasons that the federal debt has exploded is because of how the tax structure has shifted. Meanwhile, America's wealthy are financing America's exploding debt by lending the federal government money for which the government pays them Interest. So as the federal debt continues to mount, those interest payments are ballooning. The Congressional Budget Office, as I mentioned, predicts that interest payments on the federal debt will reach 3.3% of the GDP by 2032 and 7.2% of the GDP by 2052. And the biggest recipient of these interest payments aren't foreigners, but wealthy Americans who park their savings in treasury bonds. Held by mutual funds, hedge funds, pension funds, banks, insurance companies. So, the wealthy used to pay higher taxes to the government. Now, the government pays the wealthy interest on their loans to finance a swelling debt that's been caused by Washington that can't spe- that just keeps spending more money than it takes it- than it's taking in. That means that a growing portion of your taxes are going to the wealthiest Americans in the form of interest payments rather than paying for government services. So this is a huge problem, and it's going to continue until we do something about our debt problem. And yet I really don't hear many people raising the issue of the debt. I mean, I did hear some of the Freedom Caucus people mention this, um, and you do hear it now from some Republicans in the context of different changes they want to make before doing something about the uh, debt ceiling. But in terms of, like, a, like a, I think Joe Manchin brought up the idea of a new Simpson-Bowles-style commission. Aside from a few voices, though, you don't see people making the national debt a big story. And I think it's because John Katz is right. That um, you, a lot of, this is not a sexy issue. Unlike going to the grocery store and paying $40 for a carton of eggs, people don't see the effect that the debt has on their lives. But this is a very real situation where your tax dollars are going in the form of interest payments to some of the wealthiest of your countrymen. And I'm not against rich people. God bless them. Country needs them. But I'm not really that eager to have most of my taxes or at least 7% of them sometime soon go to the wealthiest Americans in the form of interest payments. So if you want to comment on that, you can. 800-848-9222. That's one 800 848 Andrew McKenna is here. We're going to uh, chat with him about drugs. And uh, then uh, next hour we have some other fun things that uh, we're going to talk about. I'm still getting a lot of font emails and I'm I'm really enjoying these font emails. If anybody knows by the way any of these font emailers how to make my de facto Gmail font a uh, Times New Roman or Courier New, I would certainly appreciate that. So I'm working on converting my other platforms to uh courier new and or times new roman as well but we'll see where that goes all right you can also find me on facebook at facebook.com slash morano fan that's facebook.com slash morano fan thank you very much we'll continue with andrew mckenna straight ahead
0: the other side of midnight with frank morano It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Up on the roof. Up on the roof. When this old world starts getting me down and people are just too much for me to face. I climb way up. To the top of the stairs And all my cares just drift Right into space The Drifters,
1: up on the roof. Uh, We saw that uh, Barrett Strong, whose 1959 hit Money, gave uh, fledgling music entrepreneur Barry Gordy the jumpstart to his business known as Motown Records. He has uh, passed away at the age of 81. As a singer, Barrett Strong was a one-hit wonder. But uh, teaming with Norman Whitfield, he wrote a string of hits for others, including Heard It Through the Grapevine and um, This Magic Moment by the Drifters. And the Drifters were great. Can't beat them. All right. Um, Very pleased uh, to welcome back Andrew McKenna. Andrew McKenna is a a good friend of mine and a, a great guy. Besides, he is the deputy director of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester, and the author of uh, one of the best memoirs that I've ever read, which I still recommend. It's available on Amazon, Sheer Madness. Andrew, it's great to see you. Good morning.
16: Good morning, Frank. Great to see you, man. Uh,
1: by the way, and uh, I understand you are in the process of uh, finishing another book.
16: I am. I'm um, writing a book with good friend Kenny Robinson, who I know you've met uh, in the past. I think he's been on the show um, and it's another, another memoir and it deals with, for me, the prison years mm. and, uh, we get into how Kenny and I met in prison and what he's done since then and what I've done. Uh, he's a true visionary and I always tell him he's going to be in the history books, uh, you know, along with, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and, um, W.E.B. Dubois, and he's just amazing. He's a driven person to help a lot of people. Helps a lot of people coming out of incarceration reclaim their lives.
1: Well, that's wonderful. What's the name of that book? Is that available for pre-order yet?
16: It's not no. available for pre-order, but uh, probably looking at a release date of um, the fall. And it's uh, we have a it's it's called Unmasked. It will be the title of the book and. It's the the working title right now. But, yeah, we're really excited Great. about it.
1: Great. Well, we'll look forward to having you back when Great. the the book is out, and uh, Kenny also. Um, you, for people that don't know your story – and by the way, you got to get Sheer Madness. It's a wonderful book. It's by Andrew McKenna, M-C-K-E-N-N-A. Uh, maybe if you play your cards right, maybe we can persuade Andrew to give a copy or two away uh, today. But no promises. We'll see where that goes. But um, – uh, Andrew, you were a Marine, you were a pre- federal prosecutor, you developed an addiction to heroin, um, and then you be- turned to crime. You became a bank robber and then went to uh, federal prison in your memoir that's the subtitle, From Federal Prosecutor to Federal Prison. Now you spend a lot of your time trying to help people that are dealing with addiction issues or help people who may have family members that are battling addiction issues. Let me ask you about what uh, British Columbia, Canada is doing. We've got a lot of Canadian listeners. Some hear us over the radio. Others listen online. They're in the midst of uh, a three-year experiment with drugs. Starting today, small amounts of drugs are decriminalized, not just marijuana, which New Yorkers and New Jerseyans and Nevadans are familiar with, but this includes hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. Cannabis is already legal up there in Canada. So instead of facing criminal charges, people caught with less than two and a half grams will receive information on treatment or other resources. Drug trafficking, that's still illegal. A lot of people looking at this and wondering, will this be successful? Will it uh, make the problem worse? What do you think?
16: It's such an interesting topic to me because I remember studying this back in, in college years and years and years ago. And the biggest concern was that by legalizing it, you're almost condoning it for those who haven't um tried drugs or you know even started with marijuana or progressed onto something else so it's almost like the the government's um saying it's somehow okay, it's not as dangerous as we've been telling you and the federal government has spent over a trillion dollars since the war on drugs began and everybody seems to claim that the war on drugs has been an utter failure failure that's very popular sentiment this is what i think and this is what i know having um been through addiction myself and now you know helping people that are struggling with addiction you you have to start somewhere with the reason why a person picks up and uses in the first place almost everybody i know um is looking for a reason to escape or looking for a way to escape their emotions, their stress, their anxiety. Uh, Maybe they lost their job, lost a loved one. Grieving is a huge thing. Hopelessness, loneliness. These are the the main uh, factors uh, for people looking to escape what they're feeling. If we were to decriminalize certain drugs and take some of the money that we've put towards enforcement um, into prevention, and mental health and awareness before mental health really starts to take a tumble in one's life. If you look at, you know, what we're teaching people that are in kindergarten or first grade, second grade, third grade, um, helping our young people have better coping mechanisms so they can deal with the stressors of life. We know life is difficult. So if we can shift some of the funding towards prevention, um, of the of the main mental health causes that cause somebody to then go and use and escape, then maybe it could be successful. The, another point to, to doing this and decriminalizing um, certain drugs, and now we're talking about the harder drugs like cocaine and heroin, is uh, arresting people for small user quantities and then warehousing them is an absolute injustice. And right now, the United States houses more people in prisons and jails um, and are justice involved in some way than, than all other com- uh, countries combined. It's, it's ludicrous. We have a jail uh, uh, system where people are profiting based on laws that are archaic and frankly don't work
1: the advocates of what Canada is doing, and there are plenty in the United States as well, but the advocates of what Canada is doing, they say that addiction is a health issue and not a crime. And people who are not afraid of being punished and thrown in jail, they're um, much more likely to seek help for their addiction issues. Whereas if they're afraid that they're going to get locked up for it, they're going to be a lot less likely to seek out resources to help them. What do you say to that argument?
16: Well, we know that someone who's in the throes of addiction, the prospect of being locked up is not a deterrent. You, you're already in the compulsion stage of addiction. My case is a perfect example. When I was robbing banks, I wasn't um, worried about going to prison. That, that that didn't stop me from doing what I was was doing at the time. But it's also, it kind of goes to my first point, too, because at sentencing, after I was caught, um, we made the argument that, you know, I was desperate to get money for drugs. That really wasn't the case. It it had so much more to do with the pain that I was feeling. I was going through an awful custody battle. I couldn't seem to get any traction. I did have an injury in the Marine Corps, which got me onto uh, prescription painkillers, which is, you know completely dangerous if it's not carefully watched thank god it it is it is much more now than it used to be it's still an issue but really i had pain between my ears the sadness of losing my children and um i just couldn't seem to get any traction i couldn't seem to get a victory it 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 really snowballs out of control at that point so stopping the mental crisis that so many people go through on a daily basis and we're not talking about you know, major uh, psycholo- or psychiatric disorders like um, schizophrenia or something that's really has to be treated with medication. We're talking about day-to-day stuff, frankly, stress, anxiety, depression. Uh, it can really spiral out of control. If we can start treating some of those things and teaching young people and young adults and older people as well to deal with those stressors, uh, I think we'll go a long way.
1: I know that uh, Portugal tried something similar about 20 years ago in decriminalizing
16: drugs. Do you have any idea how it's worked out for them? It's it's really fascinating because they thought that the number of drug users would go up, but it actually decreased. And it's difficult. The data that I read, they haven't been able to tie it to one particular factor, Um I think part of it was that uh, a lot of people look at drugs and and if they haven't gotten into them yet, it it sort of has this allure, this unknown, this sexiness to it. And they want to try it. And perhaps maybe by decriminalizing it, it made it look like it's not that big of a deal. You know, there's not it's not really risque behavior. And so for the people that are motivated by that type of thing, maybe it took some of that allure away.
1: One of the things that – in one of the articles on what Canada is doing that I've read was that Oregon has done something like this, uh, but they've been slow to fund services, and one of the criticisms of Oregon's policy – is one of the same criticisms that's now being directed towards British Columbia, which is that in order for this kind of a, a philosophy to work, decriminalization has to be paired with treatment programs and other resources like what Portugal did. But there are some folks wondering, concerned about just decriminalizing without funding the uptick in, in treatment. I mean, is that a fair concern from where you're standing?
16: Absolutely right, because the money has to go into treatment options for people. It, typically, someone, uh, an addicted person, and we've changed the language, we don't use the word addict so much anymore, is a, an addicted person, uh, they don't want to be addicted anymore. You know, once the wheels come off the bus, it's not a, a big party anymore. It's, it's awful and very, very difficult to get out of. And unless you have treatment options for them, then it's very easy for them to continue using. It It's the... Uh, you know, the path of least resistance at that point, especially with opioid addictions where there's a, a strong physical component, very difficult to get off of that without effective treatment.
1: What, and if people just we're talking with Andrew McKenna, in addition to being the deputy director of the National Council of Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester, he's also a consultant to attorneys and judges for addiction and um, mental health related issues. He's a former attorney himself. One of the things that uh, I think really shocks people into paying attention about this kind of thing is that the statistic that there are more people dying every year from drug overdoses in this country than died in the entire Vietnam War. And they say one of the driving forces behind these uh, drug overdose deaths is fentanyl, the fact that more people are using fentanyl, the fact that fentanyl has an increased lethality. And this has spurred a large number of reports that um, police officers, correction officers, others just by touching fentanyl can get uh, can get uh, can get seriously ill or suffer a drug overdose. Now, a lot of medical professionals have tried to debunk this, but there's still a lot of people, and they've called me all saying the same same thing, which is that, no, um, you can suffer from a drug overdose just by touching fentanyl, even with a glove. Based on your research, Andrew, what's accurate? Can you suffer from a drug overdose just by touching fentanyl?
16: I'm so hesitant to answer that question, right, because we have conflicting opinions from people uh, you know, two sides and they're all experts. My understanding when I first heard and saw, actually it was a YouTube video probably two years ago, but it was a YouTube video of a, of CNN or Fox or something. It was a major news network and they were showing, um, a first responder police officer down in Florida overdosed. And the allegation was that she touched, uh, fentanyl and, um, you know, it seeped into her skin, through her skin, and that was, and it was the cause of the overdose. I was alarmed by that; it scared me. Like if I ever came upon fentanyl or somebody who had overdosed, maybe they had uh, residue on their skin mm-hmm. or something that I, you know, I could overdose too. But so until we really know definitively. The research I've read is that, no, you cannot overdose that way, and that this is just something that the media has blown up, and we know that in in many cases fear sells, and so they kept pumping it and pumping it. The the problem with this is that it's deterring people from – Helping someone who is in the in the throes of an overdose or even appears to have overdosed, it could be a heart attack it could be have nothing to do with drugs at all, but they don't want to go near the person and so this fear is is really dangerous and it could cost a lot of lives just based on that alone
1: so uh, but the the reader's digest version is you're not ready to answer my question is if you're a police officer or a correction officer, and you touch fentanyl uh, for a short amount of time you're not ready to take a position on whether you can suffer a drug overdose from that
16: I'll say this the International Journal of Drug Policy which is a legitimate research-based foundation they did a meta-study and they looked at thousands of these cases reviewed thousands of cases where it was suggested that a first responder overdose simply by touching fentanyl And they pretty much debunked all those cases, all those allegations.
1: Let me ask you about this. This was a conversation on the Cats at Night show yesterday. Great, great interview overall with uh, Derek Maltz, who was a uh, DE agent. He's now retired, but he's on television a lot. He's on radio a lot. He does, like yourself, a lot of work in the uh, drug addiction advocacy area. And he was talking with their whole panel of people, including Craig Eaton, who uh, I think you probably met. He's an attorney. He's a friend of mine as well. He's been on this show. And Craig was raising some concerns about marijuana now that it's legal in New York, now that it's legal in New Jersey, now that it's legal in Nevada, seemingly everywhere it's legal, that the possibility of it leading to harder drugs, and greater drug addiction. Here's a portion of the conversation between Craig Eaton and retired DEA agent Derek Maltz. This is Craig Eaton. My my uncle was in the DEA for many, many years, and he used to tell us as we were kids that they they can never make pot legal because pot leads to cocaine, leads to crack, leads to heroin,
17: leads to other drugs. Do you agree with that?
7: Yeah, and I'll tell you really what's going on now, Craig. Great, great point. Uh, You know, historically, you know, nobody thought smoking a joint was that big of a deal. Now the THC is so high, there are studies coming out everywhere that it's causing psychosis, schizophrenia, it's causing depression, anxiety. And guess what happens to a kid in high school that's depressed and is anxious? He goes out and tries to find Xanax. And the Xanax is killing them because it's deadly
1: fentanyl. Because you need so something stronger. Them. You, you got to keep. You got to keep looking for things stronger because the pot yes. isn't working anymore, and then the cocaine yes. isn't working anymore. So you got to go to crack. But it, it's crazy where we're going in this country. You know, I uh, I, I like Craig a lot and a smart guy and sure. a great attorney and a friend of mine. I found that um, that line of questioning or that line of uh, concern regarding marijuana. I, that took me aback, and I did disagree with it. I, I've never smoked marijuana, but I think I'm the only person in my family and the only friend of mine, uh, the, you know, the only person in my peer group that has never smoked marijuana. Everyone I know has has at least tried marijuana, and none of them, almost none of them, went on to harder drugs like the ones that Derek and Craig were talking about. Now that marijuana is legal, almost anywhere you can hear our voice What do you think about the concerns that those guys are raising about marijuana being a gateway drug and leading to harder, harder substances?
16: So some people, I I have friends that smoke pot and they don't move on to cocaine or heroin or fentanyl or anything. Um, They enjoy achieving an altered state of mind. Instead of a couple glasses of wine or some scotch or something, they'll smoke a little bit of pot and they're, completely content with that. Their lives are generally in order, and they're just moving along and and doing okay with it. But there are other people, especially our younger people, whose brains aren't even fully developed until they're 28, 29, 30 years old, uh, who might initially pot because they're curious, their friends are having fun, they laugh, they get the munchies, they eat. It seems kind of harmless. But as life continues, the stressors kick in, reality kicks in, and they're uncomfortable with those feelings. So now they're going to pot because they had a bad day Mm. or they're worried. They feel insecure. And as they get older, they're not developing any skill set to deal with the difficulties of life. It becomes a slippery slope. After a while, uh, they're smoking more and more pot. Oddly, their life—and I say that uh, sarcastically—their life becomes a little bit more challenging, a little bit more difficult. They're not as sharp because they're high more often, or not than not. And so the problems and challenges of life compound, and now all of a sudden, the marijuana isn't enough to kind of you know allow them to escape that that tension, that anxiety that they're feeling, the fear, and so they do try something a little stronger. And then when that starts to increase, the problems even increase more. And it becomes this self-fulfilling thing, this cycle. Um, and then as the problems increase more, then they start using more in in like an individual sitting. And then their frequency of use increases. And then before you know it, the wheels completely can come off the bus. It's very, very dangerous. And with fentanyl now, um, it's – even more dangerous because it, it takes such a little amount, like literally the amount of fentanyl that you could hold on the tip of a pen, like a writing pen, is enough to overdose. So, and I want to just go back when we were talking about decriminalizing a lot of drugs. I think fentanyl's is gonna change that, or fentanyl is gonna change that argument a little bit too. If it's um, decriminalized and there's not a, a market for it, like a street market for it, and you have to go to a dispensary, it's going to be more regulated. Like if I go to a dispensary, I know if I'm buying marijuana, it's not going to have fentanyl in it. At least I'm 99% right. sure it's right. not, right? Uh, whereas on the street, you just don't know. You're rolling the dice. So decriminalizing it, decriminalizing Drugs may actually protect people because it will be regulated. Right,
1: and that's the argument always behind decriminalization of prostitution as well. Uh, one, it will keep people that are underage from getting involved as prostitutes, but also there's certain health standards that, uh, that are in place in illegal vice as opposed to an illegal one. We're talking with uh, Andrew McKenna. He's the deputy director of National Council of Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester. By the way, Andrew, if people want to get in touch with you, I want to recommend they do check out your book, uh, Sheer Madness. But if people do want to get in touch with you, um, what, uh, what's the best way for them to do that?
16: You can email me at Andrew McKenna, and then the letters acs at gmail.com. Um I also have a phone number set up for people to call me if they need help. I work with um people from all walks of life uh I work because I was an attorney. I work a lot with attorneys um either with them personally or family members but oftentimes clients. The phone number is area code five one eight two six nine eight three zero six and I, look i'm I'm here to help. I went through hell with my situation. Lost my license to practice law. Uh, it it can really spin on spiral out of control quickly. Uh, if you can get it early, um, you can you can save yourself and a lot of people, a lot of misery.
1: A lot of people eager to uh, comment on this. 800-848-9222. four eight nine two two two. We're going to take as many calls as we can. But I have to ask you about this interesting story in the New York area. There was a drug dealer who has been convicted in these fentanyl overdose deaths of three New Yorkers. A drug dealer by the name of Billy Ortega could face life in prison for charges related to selling cocaine laced with fentanyl. This is a New Jersey man who was convicted of causing the deaths of three New Yorkers. He sold them cocaine laced with fentanyl, found guilty on Monday of All charges by a federal jury in the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. And at a sentencing uh, scheduled for June 2nd, he could face 25 years to life in prison. He's 36 years old. And uh, you were a federal prosecutor. I'm curious how you view this situation and how you view the practice of sentencing drug dealers for the overdose deaths of their clients.
16: It's deeply troubling. Right. He, he was charged with one count of narc, narcotics conspiracy uh, resulting in death, three counts of narcotics distribution resulting in death, and, of course, the gun charges you mentioned. Here's the problem. He was making a, a lot of money, and he assumed a lot of risk uh, with with the prison sentence that he was facing. When I looked at the facts of the case and read behind it a little bit, He knew that he was um, intentionally putting fentanyl in cocaine and not not to cause overdoses, but to make his product more enticing to buyers. He also knew that um, he'd gotten feedback from somebody who he had sold the cocaine to that said it was way, way too strong. Mm. I ended up in the hospital. He turned around then the next day, I believe. And sold it to somebody else, or gave it to another drug dealer, and said, "Here, go give this to some of your customers." You know, we need to kind of screen our stuff and make sure it's sellable. So there are certainly aggravating factors to it. But even if there weren't those aggravating factors, um, this is a huge problem. It, it, it's it's based off of greed. You're playing on people's addictions and you know people's vices, and it look knowledge of the law is in a defense and i mean he knows it's illegal he probably didn't know there was a mandatory minimum 25 years if if what he sold resulted in death or is is right. criminal enterprise i don't have a whole lot of sympathy
1: all right we're gonna try and run through as many calls as we can in the next couple of minutes andrew mckenna is here eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. joe in queens has been patiently holding hello joe
11: yeah hi andrew you've got a great speaking voice by the way um What I wanted to ask is, uh, you know, with financial crimes or the drugs, you might have a job, say, an accountant or work on Wall Street or do arbitrations where there's a built-in opportunity for some graft or or, uh, fraud versus going out of that venue and looking for it. And the same with maybe drugs. Maybe you have some friends that use them or do you look elsewhere you know, do you see a difference in that type of uh addiction
16: I really don't I really don't because we could say, well, they're different because it's money, and the person needs more money to you know pay bills or they got behind in something, so they're they're tempted that way. That could be true, but there's also some element to doing something. And they're getting some sort of rush from it. It's almost like problem gamblers. It's, it's a very difficult addiction to treat because there's almost as much of a rush, that enticing feeling that, that keeps someone to continue to do it, whether they win or lose. Some people are gamblers actually are just as addicted to losing as they are winning. It's it's a very, very difficult addiction to treat, as I mentioned. So in that case, I, I could see it go both ways. 4- uh, and it's absolutely a temptation.
1: Um, you know, uh, stick around a couple of minutes if you don't mind, Andrew. Those sure. of you that are holding Bobby, Paul, and whomever else, we'll uh, get back to you in a minute. We're going to continue with Andrew McKenna at 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. midnight. midnight, midnight. 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 Side of midnight. It's...
1: By George Harrison Uh, This is a birthday bumper music selection From my friend Phil Maravolo When I knew Phil Maravolo He was a young political operative We go back uh, over 23 years And uh, these days he's a teacher Like most people from where I grew up He moved to New Jersey And he's doing very well out there now A father of two Great guy Uh, Happy birthday to you, Phil Maravolo. Hope all your wishes come true. Hey, speaking of music, when I was talking about Barrett Strong and the role uh, that he played in launching Motown, I neglected to mention that Charlie Thomas who was part of the Drifters, has also passed away at the age of 85. So there's all kinds of reasons to listen to the Drifters this week. Speaking of drifting, we are uh, drifting in and out of conversation with Andrew McKenna. He's a consultant to attorneys and judges uh, for addiction and mental health issues. He also happens to be the deputy director of the National Council of Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester. going to try and squeeze in as many calls as we can here. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello there, Paul. Well, Hi, Frank. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Paul. Hi.
5: Oh, it sounds like you have quite a history with uh, mental health and uh, marijuana. This gateway drug, well, I started young, but we'd go to uh, Grateful Dead concerts <laughs> and smoke some marijuana and do some acid and mushrooms and, sure. you know, pretty, pretty heavy and been through all the You know, Florida with all the cocaine and different things. But, uh, you know, now I use it for medical reasons. And, you know, I know they can uh, sometimes, if they were going to do a survey or something, they can kind of guide the results to how they'd want them to be. All right, Paul.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We want to try. We only have about a minute and a half here, so I want to try and run through as many of these calls as we can. Bobby is in Manhattan. Hello, Bobby.
9: Hey, hey, Frank. Hey. So, so um, when Carmine gets old enough, he's going to be hanging out
2: with
8: friends, and I hope that he has the pure
13: marijuana pot that I had. I'm seventy three. And I had real Panama red and it it wasn't I mean, it
8: was heavy, but it wasn't that heavy. It was like pure. And you woke up the next day and you weren't all screwed up. So that's what I'm hoping. All
1: right. Well, I, I mean, Andrew, with marijuana being legal now, is that more likely that it's going to be a uh, a cleaner, a purer form of marijuana or is that less
16: likely? Oh, no. It's. It, I think it's much more likely anything managed through a dispensary for sure. But the concentration levels are way higher. This. This isn't your grandparents' marijuana. Even in the legal dispensaries. Correct. All right.
1: Uh, finally, uh, only got about thirty seconds here. Billy in Queens, you've been holding. Hello. What
7: if they make cocaine legal, and then people want to where we're having fentanyl in it, because it'd be like bite a pack of cigarettes from
9: the government.
1: Well, I think that's kind Co- of the point Andrew was raising, right? I mean, that's one of the things that comes with decriminalization, is there's a certain expectations of, of non-lethality, right?
16: Absolutely, right. And I'll say one other thing. There's many people out there, active drug users, that want fentanyl in their cocaine, and they also throw in a little bit of heroin. Andrew McKenna, uh, check him out. Uh, get the book, Sheer Madness. It is the most
1: interesting memoir that I've probably ever read. It's available on Amazon, MCKENNA. Until next hour, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The
0: Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I see my brother, um, in, not literally, but in spirit, Joe Borelli, my brother in solidarity, as Curtis was um, what I was call him, on television right now. Now, Joe is always texting me during the show. He has a tough time staying asleep. And uh, he's, with whatever I'm talking about, I'm always saying, Joe, clearly you have an opinion about this. Text me. I mean, uh, call me. Why don't you call, come on the air? No, nah, I don't want to wake m- Rachel. Rachel's his wife as well. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fall back asleep. And yet, somehow, when television calls, he's able to rouse himself from whatever sleep, pseudo-sleep-like state he's in and make it to a camera. But Very interesting. not when it comes to the world of radio. So we see where we rank, Joe. I'll remember that if you come over for ping pong this weekend, I am a I am an admitted fan of older people. What I call seasoned citizens. I think we have a mutual affinity for one another. I've always found my sensibilities, my interests, my uh, the the friends that I keep all happen to be older people, and I see the numbers uh, that we get. Uh, on the radio show here, the ratings, and we are killing it with older folks. Killing it. Some In some cases, literally, which is why I'm hoping more of you will put us in your will. But, I, and it's also kind of sad, because growing up, almost all of my friends were significantly older. Right? Uh, 70, 75, when I was 17, 18. And unfortunately, that's led to me uh, losing a lot of people that I've been very close with. Now, I have developed a lot of relationships with younger people, but it's still – it's it's sad. It's lonely when all your friends pass away. I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this. But I um, – uh, just this week recently, my friend Jimmy Romano – or last week, Jimmy Romano passed away at the age of 94, a friend of mine for decades. Sorry to lose him. But um, the point is I've always had a soft spot in my heart for older Americans, older people. I guess it's not limited to Americans. And I think they've always had a soft spot for me. How many people in this world, take a guess, how many people in this world right now do you think are 100 years old or older in the world right now? How many? Matt Blaze, take a guess. How many people are 100 years old or older in the whole world, whole world, whole planet?
12: Five million. Five
1: million. <laughs> what planet are you living on? See, now this is not going to sound impressive. Five million. My goodness. All right. Okay. Now forget it. This is what I get for using you as a prop and not and not rehearsing this. All right. There are nearly. <laughs> Now it doesn't sound impressive. Now nobody cares. It's like when my wife asked me to guess the price of something. I don't know how much anything costs. All right. There are nearly 600,000 people who are 100 years or older in the world, according to the UN. And that's projected to swell to not quite Matt Blaze's number, but to 3.7 million people by the age, uh, by the year 2050. Now that's a lot of 100 year olds. To be walking around, not so many as Matt Blaze is apparently. You can tell he lives in an a older community, that, but uh, that's a lot of people in this world—a hundred years old or more. Three point seven million. The big, our longevity is—they say. I mean, who knows what's accurate, right? They say our longevity is twenty-five percent dependent on genetics, okay, and the other seventy-five percent is based on lifestyle choices. Are you smoking? Are you drinking? Are you eating the right foods? Are you uh, doing other things? The Washington Post has an interesting article on this by Teddy Amenabar. And here are the top three things for lengthening life through those healthy choices. But I'm going to give you them. But what I'd like you to do is if you're over the age of 100, if you're 100 years old or older, Give me a call, and I want you to tell me two things. One is how you celebrated your 100th birthday. And two, what you think the key to your longevity has been. Because everyone's always curious, you know, whenever there's an article about the world's oldest person, they always ask, oh, what's the key to living this long? And they always sometimes they'll say, oh, well, I only eat one meal a day or I uh, walk five miles a day, whatever the case may be, or uh, good friends or staying active. If you're 100 or older, those are the two things I want you to answer me. One, what'd you do for your 100th birthday? And two... What do you think the key to your longevity has been? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848 9222 Now, um, because we're not quite up to Matt Blaze's number of 5,000,000 year olds yet, and not all of the 600,000 100-year-olds are nocturnal, I'm going to extend this to 90-year-olds as well. If you're 90 or older, I want you to uh, tell me what you did for your 90th birthday and what you did for, uh, and what you think the key was to your longevity. 800 According to this article in the Washington Post, these are the top three tips for lengthening life through healthy choices. And uh, these have been talked about before, and I've talked about them before. But one is stay active. Older adults who keep their bodies moving through their favorite forms of exercise, whether it's walking yoga dance they tend to stay healthier longer two and this is this is so important and so I- interesting keep old friends and make new ones a lack of meaningful relationships can chip away at our mental and physical health especially as we age and i agree with that although what i don't think that tip is including is the, the fact that the more friends you have, the more people you have asking you to do things, right? That you need to drive them to the airport. You need to help them move furniture. You need to do this. You need to do that. You got to go to this. You got to go to that. My entire calendar is comprised of me trying to live up to obligations that I've made to the substantial social group that I've accumulated over the years. And three is, and this is so important, and I want to stress this, Go outside. Luigi Ferrucci, the scientific director at the National Institute on Aging, told the Washington Post this If I had a jewel to give to people who want to live long and well, I would tell them to get up early in the morning and go out. Well, that's interesting. Go outside. So, those are the three tips outlined in the Washington Post from Luigi Ferrucci, uh, stay active, keep old friends and make new ones, three, go outside. So we can all take small steps to keep ourselves healthier and hopefully make some healthy choices to keep ourselves living longer. So if you're in your 90s, if you're hundred. Those are the two questions that I'd like to know from you. One, what'd you do for that milestone birthday, either 90, 95, or 100? And two, what's your key to success? Especially if it's something in addition to these three that I just mentioned. When my my grandmother passed away, I believe she was, um, she was just shy of 96. And um, we had a, a big party for her 95th birthday. And she happened to turn 95 right around the same time, within a week or two, within a couple of weeks, of my uh, brother turning um, turning 21. So we had a joint birthday party for both of them. My brother's birthday is May 29th, and my grandmother's birthday was, uh, I want to say June 6th. Yeah, D Day, right? So that was uh, they're a week apart, but one was turning twenty-one and one was turning ninety-five. So we had a joint party for both of them, and we invited all their friends. And we we had graphics. We called it twenty-one ninety-five. That was a lot of fun. And uh, trust me, my grandmother, she was a partier. She could um, throw back her drink. At that time in her life, was doers. She would also drink martini, but she liked doers scotch. She was would throw back scotch. In a manner that would make the 21-year-olds blush. I mean, really, she would drink the 21-year-olds under the table. 800 9222 If you're over 90 or over 100, what's your secret to longevity, number one? And number two, what'd you do for that milestone birthday? Uh, if you have a relative in that area, we'll count that as well. Let me begin with Edward in Queens. Hello, Edward. Hello, sir. My my mom is coming up on, on this month for her 98th
8: birthday, and she's very energetic. And I think the key to longevity, like you said, is to do the crossword puzzles. And my brother, who's a medical practitioner, takes her out every day to the beach. And um, you know when he gets a chance, and uh, it's it's ama- it's amazing. You know you you need that. Like you said, um, there's a this thing about are uh, you were talking about light. You need these light. Um, there's a, a to um, you need these lamps that, that that cure
1: depression and stuff in, in our world that, to manufacture them. But anyway, thank you, sir, for your, well, uh, uh, your happy, time. Thank you, Edward. Happy birthday to your mom. Thank you, brother. Sure Bye. thing. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Donna is on Staten Island. Hello, Donna. Hi, Frank. This is Donna. Did I deliver the papers. Yes, I know. Are you the one that won't let me give you a tip? You're running away from yes. me. Yes. Yes. I'm a little nervous
18: talking on the phone. Oh, don't be However, silly. My, and thank you for the shout-out the other night. I appreciate it. Um, I had a customer that was 103 years old. Oh, and wow. she was a Yes. And I had to deliver the paper, like, very early to her because she used to, like, wait by the door. She was the sweetest woman. She was going to be 104 in November. Unfortunately, she passed away. Oh. I she was sharp minded. She drove until the late nineties. She was very social. Unfortunately all her friends passed away at one point. Uh I asked and she was alone for over fifty years in her but she had a family, but she was alone. She lost her husband over fifty years ago. But she told me she always made herself dinner, not just put something together. She sat down mm-hmm. to a proper dinner. And she was so sharp. She was sharper than me sometimes, I swear, because she used to call me. She really was a nice woman. I miss her. Wow. Because, no, it sounds
1: it sounds like she was pretty special. So her one of her kind of tricks to staying sharp was, even though she was living by herself, even when she was 103, she would, rather than just heat something up or order in or go out, she would always make herself dinner every night. A, yes, a proper dinner.
18: And she got dressed. And put makeup on. She would listen to her music on the uh, old-fashioned, you know, records. Um,
1: she just had a routine, and she really was a sweet woman. Well, that's, that's nice. I'm sorry that she uh, passed away. I appreciate you sh- sharing that. Donna, I'll see you around the neighborhood, all right? I have a $2 yes, bill good. with Bye-bye. your name on it.
18: Thank you. Bye bye. Take
1: care. As my uh, newspaper delivery person, Donna, great person. You know, it's funny. The newspaper that she delivers when I get it on Sunday, because you know I, I I subscribe to all these newspapers, and the newspaper that she delivers, it's so it's neatly folded. It's on my front porch. It's there. Like you could tell whoever delivered it, uh, they put a lot of effort into making sure that it was convenient for me to get. The other papers that I get, they're just thrown. They're thrown on the lawn. Sometimes they're thrown on the driveway. And I see the guy that uh, that drives by and drops off those papers. Forget about it. He would never stop and say hello or leave me a nice note like Donna does. He just throws them wherever they happen to land. They land. It's like a. I start my Sunday morning with a scavenger hunt. I take Carmine out before Rachel gets up, and we go start looking about for these newspapers because not everybody takes their responsibilities as a letter car as a newspaper delivery person as seriously as uh, as Donna does. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I will say this: I have an aunt Camille who is of a certain age, right? And um, I would. She, she doesn't tell anybody how old she is, right? And I I can appreciate that because she's kind of looked the same for the last 25, 30 years. She doesn't look like she's aged much, and she's still as active now as ever. And I would think that um, the, her – like, she still goes to church every day. She's part of this widows group. She's still very active. And I really do think that at being active is uh, such an important element in in staying at least mentally sharp and i think physically sharp as well 808489222 when i would go my grandmother was a uh master seamstress um and she was in a towards the end of her life she was living in a in a facility uh, senior housing they would call it. and i would go to visit her and she would tell me, oh, you know, I'm, I, I only have 45 minutes or an hour. I have to go down to the, the crochet class. I said, Grandma, why do you need to – you don't need to go to the crochet class. You could teach that crochet class. You're a better – she was a professional seamstress. I mean she would make me when I was a child Star Trek uniforms from scratch. She would make me uh, all sorts of uh, – she made all my siblings Halloween costumes every year from scratch. You know, she was a, a master. And she would say to me, well, you know, I want to make sure that I go, because if I don't go and then not a lot of people come, they're going to cancel it. And a lot of the women that go, they really need that class. And, uh, you know, I like to see everybody anyway. So I always gave her a lot of credit. That she, even though she didn't need the lesson from that crochet class, she would go in part for the social aspect of it, and two to kind of take one for the team and to make sure that they didn't uh, they didn't cancel it. Alex Barnard, um, you you tried to weigh in one time on a, a marriage discussion by claiming that uh, that you had a relationship that was if, if fitting with what we're discussing. Are you going to try and do the same thing on how you survived to your age and you no. had reasonable control of your no, mental listen, faculties? I'll say
17: I'll say this in my defense on that last one. I was only half listening to <laughs> to that discussion. Fair, enough, fair um, enough. My grandmother is in her late nineties. She listen She listens to this show more or less. I mean, she's probably asleep by now. Um, but she has for a very long time claimed that the key to her longevity is that every night at 6 p.m. she has a glass of vodka with Uh-oh. uh, with tonic water, uh, just a shot of vodka, three ice cubes, and a little tonic water. And um, she says that for her it's because it gives her an appetite so she can eat her dinner. And, um, and she doesn't really eat all that much anyway because she's been a slow eater her whole life. So she, you know gets full a lot sooner than most people do
1: you know it's so funny that you say that my dad who looks younger than i do and i mean that literally he has fewer gray hairs than i do he looks the same as he did 35 years ago in fact he looks better now than he did 35 years ago physically and in every other respect you look at a picture of him when when he was uh younger and he actually looks younger now it's really a remarkable thing but he always said to your point About your grandmother, and I believe that part of the key to her longevity and mental acuity is the fact that she listens to this program on a daily basis. But he always said he looked at all the stories of people that lived to crazy long ages. And aside from the role that genetics plays, he always said the one thing that they all seem to have in common, at least the preponderance of them was that they didn't eat very much. He said it didn't matter what they were eating. They had this diet, that diet, but the one thing they all had in common is they all had very, very small daily appetites, and I guess that's the case with your grandmother as well.
17: Oh, it is, and I mean, it's gotten to the point... Well, when I was a kid, it was always uh, kind of a joke in our family whenever she would be over for dinner because... She would always apologize to everyone about how slow she was eating. She said, "I'm sorry, I'm such a slow eater." And when my when my dad was still alive, after a while, he would just say, "Oh, geez, come on, GB. I wish you would just I wish you would just hurry up and finish eating, like just to tease her a little bit." And then she would take it the wrong way. Well, that's very but, nice. We yeah. uh,
1: appreciate her listening. What's her name? GB. GB. Well, thank you, GB. You know, it's funny. Uh, B. Franklin, who was on this show. When she was 98 years old and she's led a fascinating career, her, uh, I believe it's her nephew, Kenjamin Franklin, listens to this show. And he reminded me that um, one of the things that she said as to one of her keys to staying alive at such a young age is to stay positive and not to dwell on negativity. It's so important. That's so good. You know, I've been doing a lot of research for this uh, William Shatner Interview that I'm going to be doing at the uh, both in Red Bank and in Englewood, February 10th and 11th. And it's amazing to me how sharp this guy is, because I've listened to every interview that he's done over the course of the last five or six years. I mean, I have done a deep dive into because I'm trying to make sure that the people that come to see this show, we strike a balance of, okay, you definitely want to hear his take on this on Star Trek Two, but I want to ask him questions that he's never been asked before. So one of the things that I've been doing is going back and listening to all the interviews that he's been given. And th- one of the questions he always get a- gets asked is about how it feels to be 90 or 91. And when I'm with him, he's going to be three weeks shy of 92. And one of the things that he basically always says is, I, I don't really know. You just kind of do it. Um, and you don't really sit around thinking, oh, I'm 91, or I'm 90, or I'm 89. If this is what 91 is, you just do it. So that's that. alright four eight nine two two two. Rob is in White Plains. Hello, Rob. Yes, I am in White Plains. Listen, my uncle died about six weeks ago, and oh, he was
13: 99. Well, yeah, and he played the accordion, and that was his enjoyment. He it was almost totally, he was legally blind at the time of death. And he was 99. I want to tell you a real quick story, real quick. I was a kid who lived on a street, White Plains had zoning, where there were five nursing homes. They put them all on the same block at the time, Ridgeview Avenue. My street was adjacent to it. And when I was four and five years old, I'd go out to play. My mother let me go up the property and all I knew was old people. I would see women walking in their underpants would fall off or a man who used to wander with candy looking for his girlfriend. And it, it, like, like yourself, I became sensitized to this. Real quick story, Charles Mortimer, President of General Foods, he had his mother in the originally nursing home. I was five and a half, and a half years old and I was walking by and I felt cool air in July. His Cadillac, 1951, was outside. He was air-conditioned. I didn't know what air-conditioning was. He had a telephone in it. And the chauffeur, while the, while, his, while the son, Charles, was in seeing his mother, would let me sit in the car and make a call on the
1: phone. Wow, that's something. That's Isn't something. that
13: weird? That's pretty but cool. Yeah. But, but, so yeah, but I became always, just like you, I appreciate old people. I mean, what can a young person teach you?
1: Well, you know what, more than, and thank you, Rob, right? More, more than right. you might think, right? I, um, one of the great people that I've admired, and mm-hmm. uh, in some ways I think it's a blessing that he passed away before the Me Too era, wa- but really got going, was Hugh Hefner. I really, uh, I got such a kick out of Hugh Hefner, and I'm sorry I never got to meet him. And there was a profile on him in Esquire magazine, really interesting profile, and he would do these movie nights right and you would see people at the playboy mansion who were 85 years old and you would see people that were 20 21 years old and some t- and they'd always show an old movie and not surprisingly a lot of the people that were closer to 21 they'd never seen the film so occasionally uh one of the one of the older folks would say well i can't believe you never saw whatever the picture was right And he would put a stop to that right away. He would say, whoa, I am not going to tolerate any age discrimination against older folks, younger folks or people of any age, because that's the one thing that people can't control. Right. You can you cannot control how old you are. So we're not going to make anyone feel bad because they haven't seen uh, a movie that wasn't around when they were born, right? Or that w- that they weren't born when it was made. So I always gave half credit for that. And to, to your point, Rob, I want to push back on that a little bit. I, I really think there's a lot that you can learn from young people. Honestly, uh, you're not going to be able to learn about the Boer War, right? Or uh, what it was like, um, you know, to live through... Uh, I don't know, the Great Depression from a young person. But I think there's a lot of aspects of curiosity, of a love for life, of a sense of adventurism that you can learn from young people. And that's why when I throw a party, and this is one of the reasons it drives my wife crazy, that there's always 100 people at our house for every party, I really try to look for such a mix of of people that are older, people that are younger, because there's always a lot of talk of diversity. And usually when we talk about diversity, we talk about it in terms of ethnic terms or this or that. I think diversity in age is so important. And I love um, connecting a 75-year-old with a 22-year-old and putting them in the same room and having them interact with one another and seeing where that conversation is. Goes. And one of the things I always try to do, and I don't know that we got this not on New Year's Eve because it was just such a mess with so many people. But if you go back on my Facebook page at Facebook.com slash fan, and you look at the photo albums that I've posted from previous New Year's Eve Eve's, one of the things that I always try to do is I find the oldest person in the room and the youngest person in the room and make them take a photo together. And sometimes, you know, it's the oldest person has been Roberta on Staten Island when she's come it's been Hank Papora from New Jersey. When he's come, sometimes the youngest person is my uh, my sister, Claudia, uh, when she came when she was 21. Sometimes one year, Councilman Jesse Kurtz brought his uh, baby, who was only six months old. She The, the baby was the youngest person. So um, I like mixing and matching. So I'm going to differ. I'm going to part company from you on that one, Rob. I think there's a lot you can learn from young people as well. I think when you get into your bubble of groupthink, and only surround yourself with people that are your age group, your political persuasion, your ethnicity, your religion, then that's when you get into trouble. My friend Jimmy Otto, who um, is one of the politicians that I admire most in life, he always said that one of the great benefits that he got out of serving in the New York City Council, which is that at the end of his service in the City Council, the people that he became the closest friends with were not like him. They were not um, Catholic, heterosexual, male, or Republican. And those were all things that, that he were, was. And it was really a great experience for him to be able to forge such close friendships with people that were the opposite of him in every respect. And I, I really, I always took that to heart. 800 Barry is in Syracuse uh, where my friend Ben Walsh is the mayor. How's he doing up there, Barry?
13: Uh, he's doing wonderful.
1: Good, yes. good. Well, do you know Ben he's at all?
13: I do not. He's right. an independent. Uh, he runs as an independent. He, he's doing a great job. I yeah. will tell you this, Frank. The number one thing, uh, whether you make it to your 70s, 80s, 90s, even 100, is attitude. If you have a good, out- like, good outlook on your life, then you've, you've achieved a happy life. Now, let me just tell you, just by your voice. You're the type of person that has a very good outlook. You will probably live, a, and I hope you do a very long life. Look at look at the the guy you you speak about many times, Joe Franklin. He had that type of thing. You know what I mean?
1: Uh, well, I appreciate that, Barry. And Joe certainly did have that attitude, and uh, that was yeah. kind of his defining. His defining uh, and Shatner has that. Honestly, if you read Shatner's book or if you've seen his stage show, and this is one of the things that we're going to focus on in my interview with him, I think, is so much of his life philosophy these days is saying yes to everything. Every opportunity that he gets, whether it's to swim with sharks or go to space or ride a horse or to play paintball, he says yes to everything, right? And uh, I think that – to your point, I think that does play a role. Thank you. Although, if what you're saying is accurate, Barry, which is that a positive mental attitude plays a role in longevity, then I am a little bummed because – the people that badmouth me in the Facebook group on a daily basis, these are some of the most miserable people in the world. And yet I want them to live forever because they clearly are listening to every minute of what I'm doing on a daily basis. If you want to join the Facebook group, by the way, just go to Facebook.com groups slash Radio uh, I'm going to do the $1,000 minute in a moment. But first, let me say hello to Pamela in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Ah, oh, good evening. I'm going to take a little
2: bit of the dark side on mm-hmm. this one. And um, I, I, I'm not general generalizing. I'm not saying every, I believe in all those components you mentioned. However, I have seen in history and personally, a lot of times the ones who live that uh, that much older are a little on the flat side emotionally. I won't say psychopathic, but let's say narcissistic, sociopathic, where they just don't have the emotions So they don't get ill. Stress is what kills you and uh, I've I've seen it. I've seen these people like just just aren't quite there. On the scale of uh, sociopathology they're not bad enough to be considered you know mentally ill or anything but they're kind of you know flat in certain uh, ways but yet they could be active and have acquaintances and be like uh, look for attention and everything. But they tend to, uh, where I'm crying over, uh, you know, uh, an animal being hit on the road, they're kind of just sitting there and not, you know. You know, that that's it. very
1: interesting. And, and I have to confess, I've never considered that. But I'm just thinking back at a lot of the older folks that I know and a lot of the people that interact with me via email or however else, uh, even if I had not met them. And so many of them do fit the description that you just uh, outlined. And I wonder if maybe the lack of stress in their lives uh, does play a role. That's such an interesting observation, Pamela. Thank you. That's Thank good you. stuff. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, if you want to, uh, hey, you know what may help you uh, live a little longer is if you have a $1,000. Uh, if you are able to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds you can be the you can be $1000 richer if you are the seventh caller right now to one 800 848 9222 that's one 848 9222 then you could play the $1000 minute we'll give you an opportunity straight ahead
0: the other side of midnight with Frank Morano
1: Really Dan, reeling in the years. Want to devote that to everybody celebrating a birthday today, especially Bridget Guzzi. I I reached out to Bridget uh, because uh, Bridget is a great lady and a good friend and um, the greatest gift giver I've ever encountered. And uh, I wanted her to make some of the musical selections, but uh, she never got back to me. So happy birthday uh, to Bridget, uh, if she's listening on the podcast. Also, uh, to my friend uh, Phil Maravolo, who is celebrating a birthday today, as well as uh, everybody else that might be. Uh, But uh, you are certainly reeling in the years, as uh, Steely Dan put it there. Now, we're going to play the uh, $1,000 Minute in just a moment. I want to remind you, uh, we have some new rules. You are not going to get a consolation prize unless you are able to answer five questions correctly if you answer less than five questions correctly you get uh, a you get nothing not even a giant case of satisfaction so just be aware of that uh, but uh, five questions is not too difficult all right and then you need to get um, eight questions correct to get a another monetary prize other than the thousand and then to get all to get the thousand you get the all 10 correct in 60 seconds. All right, time to play.
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank
1: Murano. Let us say hello to Kevin in Edison, New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Hello. Kevin, have you heard this segment before? Yes, ever since I had to do overnight security. Okay, great. So you, you know what to do, right? Yes. All right, you ready to go? Yes. What city was Berlin located in? The Ber- Excuse me, let me start again, start again. What city was the Berlin Wall located in? Berlin. What children's TV show features the characters Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch? Was Lamar Alexander a senator or a basketball player? Basketball player. No, I'm sorry. Uh Lamar Alexander was a, a senator from uh Tennessee for uh for a while. So um unfortunately, Kevin, I don't think we give Kevin anything. Uh, I hate to do that, uh, but uh but I thought that was I'm sorry, Kevin. So you you don't win, but I'm glad we got to talk. I thought that was a fairly easy question. One, because you got a one out of two chance. And I feel like, I don't know, people know Lamar Alexander. But it's something. Lamar Alexander, who just retired from the Senate, there's something about him. And maybe this is my own devilish streak. There's something about him that I think people think he was that basketball player that was married to – the the a uh, Kardashian Lamar Lamar Odom Lamar Odom I was going to say it thank you that that you're on top of I'm, I'm trying to play an audio cut of uh, of uh, uh, Abby's Werner's lawyer that takes five minutes to get ready but but um, it takes me a second to come up with Lamar Odom's name that that you're on top of my goodness priority so uh, but anyway so I was. Me- it's amazing how often I would mention Lamar Alexander's name in conversation, in real life, and they, people, someone would say to me, "I thought Lamar Alexander was a basketball player." So one time with a a woman I was dating, very intelligent woman by the way, who worked in the news business, I, I played this game with her that I just made up on the spot, and I said, "All right, let's gonna play a game. I'm gonna name someone, and you tell me whether they're a U.S. senator." Or a basketball player. And I went through this list of about uh, 15 names. And she would say senator, basketball player. And I would say she was about 50-50. But all 15 that I named were senators. I, I only named senators. and But the fact that I told them that you could be a senator or a basketball player, she guessed that several of them were basketball players. That was a fun game to play. Maybe we'll bring that back for a uh, a contest of some sort. All right. 800-848-9222. by the way I mentioned uh, that we are getting ready for these uh this William Shatner show on February 10th and uh on February uh, 11th in New Jersey February 10th is in new uh is in the at the Count Basie theater and that is apparently about 90 percent sold out so if you want to uh if you want to get tickets to that, Uh, You better act quickly. Now, there are still some more tickets available at Bergen Bergen Pack in Englewood. That's on February 11th. And if you want to get tickets, you can go to Ticketmaster. But you know how I feel about Ticketmaster. So I would encourage you to uh, go directly to the venue's website, bergenpack.org. And uh, they're actually making a promo code available if you use the discount code NJFRANK, you save $10. You know, $10 is not a lot of money, but it's $10. And at least they'll know that you heard about it from our show, right? So you could save, uh, go to org and uh, use the promo code NJFRANK. And I, I expect that to sell out very soon. So if you were thinking about, should I get tickets, should I not get tickets, I would buy them soon because they're going to going to be sold out very soon. All right. I'm really looking forward to that. You have to see the questions that I'm coming up with. I am going to blow Shatner's mind with these questions. These are going to be questions uh, not only about Star Trek II, and obviously there's going to be an audience Q&A as well, but about Shatner's life, about horses. He, Shatner just uh, reconciled with his wife, Elizabeth. I have some questions about that in there. I asked his person. I said, "Is there are there any questions off limits? Anything at all? They said no. Ask whatever you want, and uh, there's going to be audience Q and A as well. And um, I have questions about going to space, but really most of the questions, because we'll have just seen Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, most of the questions are going to be uh, about that. So that's that. All right. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to comment on anything that we're uh, on anything that we're talking about, there's a lot to get to, um, but uh, whatever you want to talk about, we'll get to it. There is this one thing that I just found really interesting. I, I I'm going to let me mention this real quick. There is apparently a film called Skinamarink. Are you up on this at all? Skinamarink. I had not heard about it until yesterday and I I haven't seen it yet. But uh evidently Skinamarink is all the rage. I love this. I love this story. Uh, Not necessarily about the film, because for all I know, the film is terrible. But this is a a Canadian analog horror film, okay? It has grossed more than $1.8 million at the box office, despite a production budget of, you ready for this, $15,000. It cost them $15,000 to make this film, and it has already made more than $1.8 million million dollars in theaters the plot sounds simple enough the plot is that two children wake up in the middle of the night to find that their father is missing and all the windows and doors in their home have vanished now doesn't that sound similar to that uh, twilight zone episode that we that everybody was talking about last week I I thought that was very interesting. I I'm, I'm not I'm curious about it. If it comes on television, I may watch it because I'm curious how it, a uh, $15,000 film that everybody seems interested in, curious about how that film actually looks. The other thing that I find interesting and I'm not going to watch this because I um I just I I don't have the time at this point to to Uh, commit to another TV show in my life. But there is a television series. It's a limited series on Netflix called Kaleidoscope. Have you heard about this? This is interesting to me. This is a show. Like I said, I think it's an eight part series. It's on Netflix and it doesn't matter the order in which you watch it. So you can watch it in whatever you want. It's a new heist television show, which I I may watch this. I mean, I'll see if Rachel, Rachel wants to watch it. And it, it shows up on different people's Netflix accounts with the episodes in a different order. So if I watch it, and Kenneth watches it, and Matt Blaze watches it, they will show the episodes in a different order. So now there's this whole debate... Oh, it's nine episodes, excuse me, not eight. There's this whole Debate about how best to watch this. There are all these debates online. And uh, I like this because we were having the same debate over the best uh, way, the best order in which to watch the Star Wars films. Do you watch them in chronological order or the order they were released? So while the show... um, Austin Gosselin is a writer for Polygon. He says while the show technically works in any order... Not every episode order provides the same level of narrative satisfaction or even coherence. So, this fellow, Austin Goslin, has joined a growing group of writers suggesting different ways in which to watch the series. You, some people prefer the chronological suggestion, some people prefer the Reservoir, reservoir Dogs inspired lineup, and uh, other people have other. Theories As to the best order of watching it. So that has my curiosity up uh, as well. Those are kind of the two entertainment stories. The story of um, that film that has made $1.8 million, Skinnamarink, and the story of Kaleidoscope. I think that's very clever marketing on the part of Netflix that they have people debating how how best to uh, to watch it. I think that's pretty neat. alright eight hundred right, 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute, in addition to it being Bridget Guzzi's birthday and in addition to it being Phil Maravolo's birthday. It is also Vera Maliotakis' birthday. Vera, if that name sounds familiar, is the mother... Of my congresswoman, Nicole Maliotakis. And you know how uh, Facebook... And my friend Mike wolf he never came back to me with song selections, but it's his birthday as well. And you know how Facebook brings you memories to share on your Facebook timeline? So it brings me all the photos that I'm in with Vera. And one of the photos that I haven't seen in years just popped up on my screen is when I was the guest announcer for a Republican versus Democrat ping-pong match. And the Republicans that were in the ping-pong match were Marty Golden and Nicole Maliotakis, Vera's daughter. Vera's standing next to me. The Democrats were Vincent Gentili and uh, Alec Brakrasny. And what's interesting to me about this photo, one is one of the referees, they had a Republican referee and a Democrat referee, one of the Republican referees was disgraced former Congressman Michael Grimm, that's what they call him. I don't like to call anybody disgraced, but he is disgraced. And the Democrat is Diane Savino, who was, at the time was a state senator. Now she's working for uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams. But the um, one of the people that was playing on the Democrat team for ping pong, Alec Prokrasny, he's now a Republican and just got elected to the state assembly again now as a Republican. So. I don't know what it means, but happy birthday, Vera. Happy birthday, Mike Wolf! Happy birthday, Phil Maravolo. Happy birthday to Sean Sejiecki. Happy birthday to uh, Paulie Shore. And uh, today also would have been the birthday of Lisa Marie Presley, who unfortunately died a couple of weeks ago. And happy birthday as well to Brandon Lee, who died about 30 years ago, the son of actor Bruce Lee. Who died uh, far too young. And today also would have been uh, former Russian president Boris Yeltsin's birthday as well. So what Boris Yeltsin and um Brandon Lee have in common, I'm not so sure. Um, but there you have it. All right. 800-848-9222. 15 seconds of fame, straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight. 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 It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
1: 9222. Two, two. You know, there was a time in my life, I haven't done this in a while, but uh, speaking of youth, uh, I used to occasionally use this gray reducing shampoo, and I stopped using it because it was, you know, a little expensive, and then I thought, all right, I mean, what's the matter with a little gray hair? It wouldn't eliminate the gray hair, it would just reduce it a little bit. I'm looking at a photo that somebody just sent me of me and them, a, a listener that I just encountered, and... I am looking very gray. Uh, I'm starting to look like I'm over 100 years old. I'm starting to wonder if I should start using that gray-reducing uh, gray, gray reducing shampoo again. We'll see. All right. Um, if you want to uh, be heard on any subject for 15 seconds, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. You want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And if you want to find us on Facebook and see the articles that uh, that have to do with this show that I post on there, you can go to Facebook.com slash fan. Uh, you could also join the Facebook group by just searching Morano Radio Fans and Haters. You definitely want to make sure to uh, check out the most recent edition of the Racket Report podcast. You can see all our podcasts or hear all our podcasts by going to RedApplePodcastNetwork.com. It's RedApplePodcastNetwork.com. Without further ado, it's time for...
0: Other side of midnight, this is 15 Seconds of Fame. Frank!
3: Frank, yesterday I was on my walk and you went to me on this statement. Either that's an alternate universe or a Fred Pasta. <laughs> Cheech in Howard Beach. Since
10: New York City hotel accommodations aren't sufficient for our new migrant community, Perhaps the mayor should ship them on the L A L I R R to the eastern end of Long Island,
3: where there are many vacancies after Labor Day weekend.
1: Tom in Long Beach. Sizzle Moron, Sizzle Moron, Sizzle Moron. Roger in Massachusetts. Yeah, you know, I always
5: understood that cheese uh, helps uh, someone fall asleep. Funny thing is, when we were growing up as little children, we had nightmares. Cheese and a half a glass of beer would put us back to sleep. Parents would give us. Raji in Manhattan. Indeed,
10: Mr. Katsimatidis, please offer WABC merchandise to listeners gratis to wear in public and thus boost WABC listenership. Thank you. Joan in New Jersey. Listen to the best blues guitarist who ever lived, Gary
4: Moore. Listen to The Messiah Will Come Again. Mike in Montclair.
7: Good morning, Frank. Congratulations on your ratings. But ratings aside, you and your boys will always be number one in my book, never number two, because
9: we all know what number two is, and you ain't that.
1: Roy in New Jersey. If people don't like what
9: you're saying, they shouldn't listen
1: to you. Shut the radio off, people. Let me go on record as disagreeing with that. Absolutely not. If you hate everything I say... By all means, keep listening. I'm not giving away any listeners. We want everybody listening. You know, I don't care if you despise every word that I'm saying. Uh, Joe is in Orange County.
10: Frank, I love your show, but you're going great. You're 55, my man. Don't
9: live the lie and stop putting dye in there. Don't do it, Frankie. Don't do
10: it. Yeah,
1: fair enough. And finally, Mike from Parts Unknown. Parts Unknown. Good morrow, Frank. Happy hump day. And you were right. Some people wake up and visit Abla
10: all day long, and you know what? Uh, they're always miserable. And 14
6: days to go to spring training, the best game ever. Let's go, Mets and you Yankee fans. Mojo, popcorn, peanuts, cracker jacks.
1: Thank you, Mike. On that promissory note, I'm out of here. We'll be back tomorrow. Frank Moreno, good day.